AI systems we might imagine could have the types of welfare interests that generate rights, as well as the type of rational and moral agency that generate duties. So they might have both. Now, which rights and duties do they have? The standard universal rights might be something like, according to the U.S. Constitution and the political philosophy that inspired it, the right to life and liberty and either property or the pursuit of happiness and so on. To bear arms. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do they have the right to bear arms? Well, well, we might want to revisit the Second Amendment before we empower <laughs> AI systems with weapons. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, we might start with those very basic rights. But then, as you say, that might already create some tensions between our current plans for how to use them and control them versus how we think it would be appropriate to interact with them if we truly did regard them as stakeholders and rights holders. Hi, listeners. This is Luis Rodriguez, one of the hosts of the 80,000 Hours podcast. In this interview, I spoke with Jeff Sebo about what kinds of ethical questions we'll have to answer once we have digital minds, so artificial beings capable of feeling joy and pain. For example, what might AI systems want and need, and how might that affect our moral concepts? What happens when beings can copy themselves? Are they one person or multiple people? Does the original own the copy, or does the copy have its own rights? Do copies get the right to vote? What kinds of legal and political status should AI systems have? Legal personhood? Political citizenship? What happens when minds can be connected? If two minds are connected and one does something illegal, is it possible to punish one but not the other? The more we spoke, the more I understood not only how many fascinating questions there are to answer in this space, and Jeff and I barely scratched the surface, but also how deeply important these questions are. And it may seem premature to be asking questions like these, but Jeff also makes the case that we'll likely want to start giving AI systems at least some moral consideration by 2030, which in my mind means we're already behind. We then talk about how to bridge that gap by building the field of AI welfare, if you're interested in how you can use your career to contribute to these questions, stick around till near the end to hear Jeff's takes. At the very, very end, Jeff covers what improv comedy can teach us about doing good in the world. And now I give you Jeff Sebo. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Sebo. Jeff is a professor at NYU, where he has a primary appointment with environmental studies and affiliated appointments in bioethics, medical ethics, philosophy, and law. He's also the director of the Animal Studies Master's Program, director of the Mind Ethics and Policy Program, and co-director of the Wild Animal Welfare Program. He's also written several books, Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, Chimpanzee Rights, and Food, Animals, and the Environment. And his latest book, The Moral Circle, comes out next year. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So I hope to talk about how our political and social structures would need to change if we determined that there was a non-negligible probability that AI systems are sentient. But first, you've been setting up a new program at NYU, the Mind Ethics and Policy Program, which basically tries to answer kind of foundational questions about the intrinsic value of non-human minds. So insects and AI systems that might be conscious and sentient, so might be able to feel pleasure and pain. We're going to focus on the AI systems component of that work today. So to start us out, why do you at least partly work on AI welfare? Why do you think it's so important? 
I think we can use the standard importance, neglectedness, tractability framework to see why this topic is so pressing. First of all, this topic is important because the future might contain many AI systems who, for all we know now, could be conscious, sentient, agential, or otherwise morally significant. And to the extent that they exist, humans will have created them and will have determined what kinds of lives they can have. This topic is also neglected because at present, very few people are working on it, way fewer than are working on animal ethics. And of course, there are way fewer people working on animal ethics than working on human ethics issues. And third, this topic is at least potentially tractable. It might not definitely be tractable because in general, questions about the nature and intrinsic value of radically different kinds of minds are very difficult to answer. But we might at least be able to improve our understanding over its current state. And even if not, Given how important this question is and how neglected it is, we should at least investigate the tractability to see whether it might be tractable. And then the final point to make is that this topic is also linked with other topics that are very pressing right now, including AI ethics and safety and alignment. One set of questions that we need to ask is about what kinds of risks AI systems might be imposing on humans and other animals. But then another set of questions we need to ask is about what kinds of risks we might be imposing on AI systems. And if we ask these questions in an integrative way, we might be able to provide much better and more integrative answers to them. Nice. Yeah, it does strike me as very, very neglected in particular, which, as you said, makes the question of whether it's tractable feel less I don't know, crucial to me, because my my understanding is that there are something like maybe tens of people at most that have thought about the question of AI sentience to date. And I just feel like if there are going to be thousands, millions, maybe even more AI systems with even some small percentage chance of being sentient, I want more than tens of people to thought about how to figure out if they are in fact sentient. Yeah, I like that way of thinking about it. And and there will definitely be more than thousands or millions of AI systems that potentially have morally significant features, right? There are quintillions of insects. There could be more AI systems than insects in the future. And so, yeah, once there are millions of humans working on this issue, I think we can have a conversation about how much to prioritize it. But if there are only tens of humans working on this issue, then I think pretty clearly we should prioritize it at least more than we are right now. Yeah, I'm with you. So. Pushing on to our first topic, you co-authored a paper with Robert Long, who we actually had on the show earlier this year, that makes the case that we should extend moral consideration to some AI systems by 2030. And I suspect that some of our listeners will find this claim a bit jarring. What exactly does moral consideration mean here? How much moral consideration? Why 2030? So just to start us off, give us some some grounding. What is the case that we should extend moral consideration to AI systems at all? The general case for extending moral consideration to AI systems is that they might be conscious or sentient or agential or otherwise significant. And if they might have those features, then we should extend them at least some moral consideration in the spirit of caution and humility. So the standard should not be, do they definitely matter? It should also not be, do they probably matter? It should be, is there a reasonable, non-negligible chance that they matter given the information available? And once we clarify that that is the bar for moral inclusion, then it becomes much less obvious that AI systems will not be passing that bar anytime soon. 
Yeah, I feel kind of confused about how to think about that bar where I think you're you're using the term non-negligible chance. I'm curious, what is a negligible chance? Where is the line? At what point is something non-negligible? Yeah, this is a perfectly reasonable question. This is somewhat of a term of art in philosophy and decision theory, and we might not be able to very precisely or reliably say exactly where the threshold is between non-negligible risks and negligible risks. But what we can say as a starting point is that a risk can be quite low, the probability of harm can be quite low, and it can still be worthy of some consideration. So for example, why is driving drunk wrong? Not because it will definitely kill someone, not even because it will probably kill someone. It might have only a one in a hundred or one in a thousand chance of killing someone. But if driving drunk has a one in a hundred or one in a thousand chance of killing someone against their will unnecessarily, that can be reason enough to get an Uber or a Lyft or stay where I am and sober up. It at least merits consideration, and it can even in some situations be decisive. So as a starting point, we can simply acknowledge that in some cases, a risk can be as low as one in a hundred or one in a thousand, and it can still merit consideration. Yeah, right. It does seem totally clear and good that regularly in our daily lives, uh, we kind of, we consider small risks of big things that might be either very good or very bad. And we think that's just like clearly worth doing and sensible. Sometimes probably in personal experience, I may not do it as much as I should, but like on reflection, I certainly endorse it. And so I guess the thinking is here that given that there's the potential for many, many, many beings with a potential for sentience, albeit uh, some, some small likelihood, it's kind of at that point that we might start wanting to give them moral consideration. I guess, do you want to say exactly what moral consideration is warranted at that point? Yeah, this is a really good question, and it actually breaks down into multiple questions. One is a question about moral weight. We already have a sense that we should give different moral weights to beings with different welfare capacities. If an elephant can suffer much more than an ant, then the elephant should get priority over the ant to that degree. Should we also give more moral weight to beings who are more likely to matter in the first place? If an elephant is 90% likely to matter and an ant is 10% likely to matter, should I also give the elephant more weight for that reason? And then another question is what these beings might even want and need in the first place. What would it actually mean to treat an AI system well if they were sentient or otherwise morally significant, that question is going to be very difficult to answer. So there are no immediate implications to the idea that we should give some moral consideration to AI systems if they have a non-negligible chance of being sentient. All that it means is that we should give them at least some weight when making decisions that affect them. And then we might disagree about how much weight and, and what follows from that. Yeah, okay. I basically just totally buy that. So we've been talking about risks of about one in a hundred to one in a thousand. Is there a chance that we should actually consider giving AI systems moral consideration way before that? Because again, there could be many of them. And so even if the chances are even lower, like one in 10,000 might still be a big moral risk to be ignoring their potential suffering. 
Yeah, this is another great question. And for people who work on the ethics of risk and uncertainty, there is a lot of disagreement and uncertainty about where that risk threshold should be. For some people, the threshold is as low as zero. They think we should give at least some consideration to all non-zero risks. We might give very little consideration to very low risks, but in principle, they merit some consideration. For other people, the threshold is above zero. It tends to range. It tends to vary between, say, about 1 in 10,000 and about 1 in 10 quadrillion. But for a lot of people who work on this topic, that is where the action lies. Is it somewhere between zero and, say, 1 in 10,000? Most or all parties agree that we should give at least some consideration to every risk that has at least a 1 in 1,000 chance of causing a significant harm. Cool. I find that compelling. I like that there's at least some agreement from a range of philosophical takes. Um, That gives me some feeling of like, okay, this is a robust kind of threshold. I actually kind of want to make that threshold more intuitive. And so I guess I'm curious if you can make more intuitive what these thresholds actually mean, maybe by giving some concrete examples of like what actually happens one in 10,000 times, uh, what happens in one in, I don't know, a quadrillion times, just so that I can have more of a like, okay, yes, I do want to make sure that I'm not harming AI systems in, in that percentage of worlds. So I'm not sure what happens one in 10,000 or one in 10 quadrillion times, but but I can I can maybe offer some examples that can make it feel compelling that in at least some cases we should consider relatively low risks of relatively large impacts. So take Oppenheimer. A lot of people saw this movie mm. over the summer. We are currently having this conversation in fall 2023, and, and this movie is still at least somewhat in the discourse. And I know people who listen to your podcast might independently be (laughs) familiar with these issues and and examples. There was a moment in the film, which I understand corresponded to a moment in reality, when Oppenheimer discovered that there was a non-zero chance that testing a nuclear bomb would ignite the atmosphere and kill everybody. And now the movie never, as far as I can recall, stated what the probability was, but we can imagine the probability was relatively low. We can imagine the probability is one in a thousand, maybe even one in 10,000 or one in a hundred thousand. When I consider that case, it seems clear to me that Oppenheimer should have, as he did, it seems, at least consider this risk when deciding to move forward with the test. Now, he might rightly or wrongly decide that the benefits of moving forward with the test outweigh that risk. That can be a further conversation, but he should at least consider the risk rather than simply neglect it entirely, put it out of mind entirely because of the low probability of this catastrophic event happening. And I think that we can construct a lot of similar cases like that, and we can use them to support this general idea that, yes, a one in a thousand, one in 10,000, one in a hundred thousand chance of harm might, for many purposes in many contexts, be low enough that we can more or less put it out of mind in practice. But there are at least some cases where the gravity of what is at stake makes it clear that it at least merits consideration and and maybe even where it carries the day, depending on the details of the case. And I think this might end up being one of those kinds of cases. Yeah. Okay. So in the paper that you wrote with Rob, you end up coming up with a particular threshold 
that you think is, I don't know, kind of plausible to, to at least many philosophers. What was the threshold and, and how did you land on it? Well, we semi-arbitrarily came up with a one in a thousand threshold. So we stipulate in the paper that once an AI system has a one in a thousand chance of being sentient or otherwise significant, given the evidence available to us, we should give them at least some consideration when deciding how to treat them. And I say that we made that stipulation semi-arbitrarily, first of all, because any line that you draw in this context is going to be at least somewhat arbitrary, or so I think. But also more pragmatically, we wanted to err on the side of being conservative and risk tolerant so that we could make our argument more acceptable to people who might otherwise be skeptical of our conclusions in the paper. Okay, so I just want to make even more intuitive for myself, really, but I'm guessing other people will share some kind of desire to understand what exactly a one in 1000 threshold would look like concretely. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've just looked up examples of risks or events that have a one in 1000 chance of happening. So one is being struck by lightning in your lifetime. And I guess we do take measures to avoid being struck by lightning. What another? A blood clot from a birth control pill. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, so that one feels like a risk that's like probably tolerable to me. I have in my life taken taken birth control pills and decided it was worth the risk of blood clots. Mm-hmm. But I did stop and think about it. And I do think more people should stop and think about it. Complications during childbirth. I definitely want people to be stopping and thinking about how to help me during childbirth on the chance that I have complications. Okay, a car accident. I mean, that's that's a very clear-cut one. Apparently, there's about a 1 in 1,000 chance of getting into an accident during a given trip. And I certainly want to be considering those odds. And especially when you consider that those are all, I guess, personal individual risks that just could harm me. Mm-hmm. If you then multiply those things out, imagining that there are many, many AI systems potentially experiencing suffering that we don't want them to experience, one in 1,000 seems pretty darn reasonable. Yeah. What are the reasons to put the threshold even higher? I guess a lot of this just feels like it boils down to whether we care more about false positives or false negatives here. So false positives being the case where we mistakenly treat something as sentient when it's not, and false negatives being the case where we mistakenly treat something as not sentient when it is. Do you have a take on which we should be more worried about in this case? Yeah, this is a really tough issue because there are significant risks in both directions. And I think that there are at least a few considerations here. One is which kind of harm is generally worse. So on one hand, the harm of false negatives is that you would be treating a subject like an object. This is obviously bad for the subject. It means objectifying, instrumentalizing, potentially exploiting and exterminating them unnecessarily. On the other hand, the harm of false positives is that you treat an object like a subject, and that might lead you to harm or neglect actual subjects unnecessarily in the course of trying and failing to treat this object well. And that can be bad for subjects, but the badness is much more contextual because there are all kinds of cases where treating an object well will not in fact detract from treating subjects well. So in terms of the expected harm, I think that generally the harm of false negatives is likely to be worse than the harm of false positives. Right. Okay. So the idea is that it might be the case that it's more clearly harmful to treat 
a subject, so a person like an object. So in this case, to treat an AI system that, you know, has thoughts and feelings like it's just uh, Google Chrome. Whereas if you if you mistake something that is actually an object, so something like Google Chrome, as a subject, so uh, a person with thoughts and feelings, there's some potential for harm. For example, you might spend a bunch of time advocating that we treat that Google Chrome really, really well. And maybe you could have been advocating for, you know, ending factory farming. And so in that sense, um, there, there are clear ways you might cause harm. But it's not exactly obvious that the, that the like, Overall harm in those cases is comparable to the harm you get from treating an, a subject like an object. Yeah, the harm of false positives is more circumstantial yep. than the harm of false negatives for that reason, exactly. Cool. Was there another consideration there? Yeah, a couple of others. One is also that the probability of false negatives might be higher than the probability of false positives at present. And again, there are risks in both directions here. We do have a tendency to anthropomorphize non-humans, which means attributing human characteristics to them even when they lack those characteristics. But we also have a tendency towards anthropodenial, which involves denying that non-humans have human characteristics even when they have them. And those tendencies are both strong and they can both be triggered by different types of systems. So which one is stronger, which one is more probable is again going to be contextual. But when we then consider that we right now are building societies and governments and economies that depend on the objectification, exploitation, and extermination of non-humans, that plus our speciesism, plus a lot of other biases and forms of ignorance that we have, gives us a strong incentive to err on the side of anthropodenial instead of anthropomorphism. So I think that in terms of the probability, too, we should, in the present circumstances, give the edge to false negatives over false positives. Cool, cool. So that is less an argument that uh, false negatives or false positives are worse, but that they might be, one might be worse than the other in expectation because the probability of false negatives is more likely. Exactly. And so if you combine them being a worse or more universal harm with them being a more likely outcome in the present circumstances, then that gives you at least some reason to think that, yes, both are risks, but generally speaking, the risk of false negatives is worse than the risk of false positives, and we should break that tie in favor of moral inclusion instead of moral exclusion. That makes a ton of sense to me. Were there any other considerations there? Yeah. The other point is that if you do think these risks are relatively balanced, then the upshot of that is not that we should simply exclude potentially significant beings from the moral circle. The upshot is that we should perhaps strike a balance by giving some consideration to all beings who might matter, but then giving more weight to beings who are more likely to matter, all else being equal. So for example, if a house is burning down and on one end of the house is a carbon-based lobster, a lobster made out of the same meat as as me. And at the other end of the house is a silicon-based lobster, a lobster made out of silicon chips. And I can only save one of these lobsters. Then, yes, I might think, okay, both of these lobsters might be sentient. They might be capable of suffering. But given the evidence available to me, the carbon-based lobster is at least a little bit more likely to be sentient, and so I should break the tie in favor of saving that lobster. So there are ways of striking the balance. The key is 
still giving at least some consideration to other potentially significant beings too, even if we find ourselves deprioritizing them. So let me give you one more example. If there are 20 people drowning and I can only fit five people on my lifeboat, of course I should save five people instead of trying and failing to save all 20. But does that mean that I should conclude that the other 15 people lack moral standing at all? Does it mean that I can make fun of them and throw rocks at them as they drown? Of course not. I should still recognize that they merit consideration I should just accept that the world is tragic and sometimes we might not be able to prioritize or support everyone who deserves consideration. Yeah, and we're just doing the best we can with the information we have. But we do have a duty to do the best we can with the information we have. So I guess in considering kind of which is worse, false positives or false negatives, um, you also should take into account that when we're talking about low probabilities, the extent to which you owe something moral consideration doesn't necessarily mean that thing should get equal priority to something else that you have kind of a higher credence on being sentient. Uh, it's just that it should be a part of your calculus. And, and yeah, I'm just totally on board. Right. Yeah. Especially when all that follows initially is that we are giving them at least some consideration when making decisions about how to treat them. We are not yet saying exactly how we should treat them, exactly how we should transform societies. We are simply saying that they merit at least some consideration at that point. Yeah. Interesting. Do you want to actually make that more concrete? Like, Let's say we knew that one in 1000 is exactly where we were with large language models right now. What would it look like in your ideal world to give them an appropriate amount of moral consideration? Well, that raises a bunch of questions that we we might or might not want to discuss. But okay. some examples are we then have to ask, okay, how much welfare can they have? Do they have the same welfare capacity as humans or other animals? Or can they experience much more welfare or much less welfare on average? We also have to ask, exactly what do they want and need and what kinds of interactions with them are good for them, what kinds of interactions with them are bad for them. And then we have to ask what kinds of legal and political statuses are appropriate given the type of moral status that they might have. So should they be legal persons with legal rights? Should they be political citizens with voting rights? As a first step, I would suggest that we at the very least do more research so that we can increase our knowledge about how much welfare they can have and what they want and need and what it might be like to create a society that can be co-beneficial for humans and other animals and AI systems at the same time, should we create them at all? And then to put in at least some modest protections for them in the near term, either in the form of self-regulation by AI companies or in the form of external regulation by governments. If nothing else, then at least the type of ethical oversight that we have for non-human subjects research, for instance. Great. That makes a ton of sense. So it's not like we're saying if there's some small but non-negligible chance that AI systems are sentient, we should give them the kinds of rights and protections that we give to humans. We're just saying we should start thinking about them, what kinds of rights and protections they might warrant, how that's going to change if the probability goes up, and not just kind of sleepwalk into that chance going up and up over time and us closing our eyes to it. Exactly. Yeah. The the early steps can be easier ones. We will have to confront the harder questions at some point, which is why I think starting sooner rather than later is good. But we are not at this moment recommending that AI companies or governments implement 
legal personhood or political citizenship and all of the rights and responsibilities that might come along with that for AI systems. Sure. Okay, so that's the case that a threshold of something like one in a thousand chance um, is a reasonable place to start giving some moral consideration to AI systems. Um, That's a kind of moral argument. Yeah, next I want to talk about the empirical part of the argument, that we probably will hit that particular threshold by 2030. How did you approach the empirical question of when there will be that kind of non-negligible chance that AI systems are sentient? Well, we wanted to start from a place of humility about our knowledge about consciousness. This is, again, one of the hardest problems in both science and philosophy. And there is a lot of disagreement and a lot of uncertainty about which theory of consciousness is correct. And there are still people who defend a pretty wide range of theories from, on one end of the spectrum, very demanding theories that imply that very few types of systems can be conscious, all the way to, at the other end of the spectrum, very undemanding theories, some of which imply that basically all matter is at some level conscious and and many, many entities are conscious. And we in general agree with Jonathan Birch and other philosophers that given how much disagreement and uncertainty there is, it would be a mistake when making policy decisions to presuppose any particular theory of consciousness as correct. And so we instead prefer to take what Birch and others call a theory light approach by canvassing a lot of the leading theories, seeing where they overlap, and perhaps distributing credences in a reasonable way across them, and seeing what flows out of that. And so Rob and I did that in this paper. We took 12 leading theories of consciousness and the necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness that those theories propose, and we basically show what our credences in those theories would need to be in order to avoid a one in a thousand chance of AI consciousness and sentience by 2030. And what we discover is that we would need to make surprisingly bold and skeptical and we think implausible assumptions uh, about the nature of consciousness in order to get that result. Yeah. So just to make sure I understand kind of the method. So you take something like a dozen theories of consciousness and uh, you look at the requirements those theories have for what an AI system would need to have or demonstrate in order for that particular theory to, to think that AI systems are conscious. So one example might be, I guess there are theories of consciousness that say a being has to have a biological substrate to be conscious. And under that theory, AI will almost certainly never meet that requirement. And so as long as AI were silicone-based, which is, I guess, by definition true, you'd like you'd put 0% probability on that particular criteria ever being met. And then there are some other criteria that that are more plausible. And yeah, I don't know if you want to give just a few examples of what those are. Yeah, absolutely. So the biological substrate condition is definitely the most demanding one. It says that in principle, nothing made out of anything other than carbon-based neurons can, can be conscious and sentient. But then there are some less demanding, though still quite demanding conditions. For example, many people believe that a system might need to be embodied in a certain sense, might need to have a body, might need to have grounded perception. In other words, have perceptual experiences based on the sense data that they collect, might need to be self-aware and agential. In other words, that they can have mental states about some of their other mental states, or they can at least have some awareness of their 
standing in a social system or some awareness of the states of their body. They can set and pursue goals in a self-directed manner, perhaps that they have a global workspace. And so they have these different parts that perform different functions and they have a mechanism that can broadcast particular mental states to all of the other parts so that they can use them and interact with each other in that way. So when we go through all of these, we can basically assign probabilities to how likely is this to actually be a necessary condition for consciousness? And then how likely is it that no AI system will satisfy this condition by 2030? And what Rob and I basically think is that other than the biological substrate condition, which sure has a 0% chance of, of being satisfied by an AI system, everything else quite plausibly can be satisfied by an AI system in the near future. And to be clear, the model that we create in this paper is not as sophisticated as a model like this should be. This is really a proof of concept illustration of what this kind of model might look like. And one can argue that in general, we might not be able to make these probability estimates with much precision or reliability. But first of all, to the degree that we lack that ability, that does not support having a pessimistic view about this. It supports being uncertain and having an open mind. And second of all, what we try to show is that it is not really even close. You need to make surprisingly bold, tangentious, and skeptical assumptions, both about the probability that these conditions are necessary and about the probability that no AI system will satisfy them in order to avoid a one in a thousand chance, which already is a pretty high risk threshold. Interesting. Yeah. So so we'll link to that paper so that people can get a sense of exactly what those conditions are and the probabilities you at least play around with putting on each of them. And I'll also link to our my conversation with Rob Long, where we talked about some of those specific theories of consciousness and what it might look like for AI systems to meet those requirements in practice. But yeah, just to, I guess, summarize, you were like, here are these theories of consciousness. Here are the requirements that each of those theories have. Here's how plausible we find each of those theories. Here's how plausible we find it that AI will meet those theories' requirements by 2030. Overall, what do we get as a probability for AI sentience by 2030? And it sounds like you you basically played around with like the most conservative, skeptical assumptions you could possibly make and that you were still able to get under very skeptical assumptions, a one in 1000 kind of chance that AI systems will be sentient by 2030. Do you want to give some examples of what some of those skeptical assumptions were? You would basically have to not only think that a biological substrate is much more likely than not to be necessary, but you would also have to think that all of those other conditions are not only more likely than not to be necessary, but also more likely than not to be unmet. And you would have to assume independence between these conditions. In other words, that becoming self-aware does not make you more likely to be agential or to have higher order representations. But none of that is really, in our view, particularly plausible. These might all be necessary conditions for consciousness. That part might be right. But other than a biological substrate, we are already seeing AI systems that can at least approximate many of these other functions. 
And it does seem plausible that by 2030, we will have at least some AI systems, or we could have at least some AI systems with advanced and integrated capacities for perception and learning and memory and anticipation and self-awareness and social awareness and communication and reasoning and so on and so forth. And at that point, yeah, we think that the probability is, if anything, going to be significantly higher than one in a thousand. You would need to be shockingly, I think, hubristically skeptical in order to avoid that outcome. Yeah, yeah. I remember actually being really struck when I looked at kind of this toy model that you still get a one in a thousand chance that AI systems are sentient, even if you put an 80% chance on basically having a biological substrate as a requirement for consciousness, which I just, I found extremely compelling because putting an 80% chance likelihood on consciousness requiring a biological su- substrate just seems way way higher as than is reasonable to do given that what given what we know about consciousness right now yeah i completely agree i think that it would be overconfident bordering on hubristic at this stage to have that high a degree of confidence that a carbon based substrate is a necessary condition for consciousness so if you picture two future brains and They both contain billions of components that send chemical and electrical signals back and forth. They both, as a result of that, have capacities for perception and learning and memory and anticipation and self-awareness and social awareness and language and reason and so on and so forth. So they are structurally and functionally identical. But one of them happens to be based on carbon-based cells and the other one happens to be based on silicon-based chips. And For that reason alone, you thought that one was conscious and the other was not to a high degree of confidence. I would be surprised by that. (laughs) And then the other generous assumption we make to skeptics of our view is that very permissive theories of consciousness are completely off the table, completely out of the question. So there are theories of consciousness according to which, for example, consciousness is a fundamental property of all matter or according to which consciousness requires only simple information processing or simple representations of objects. And we do not give any weight at all to these theories in our model, despite the fact that in surveys, more than 10% of philosophers express that they are leaning towards one of these theories. And so I think there are all kinds of reasons why the assumptions that we make in our toy model are very generous to opponents of our view, and yet we still arrive at a non-negligible chance of AI consciousness by 2030. Yeah, I do. I I just find it very, very compelling. Um, And I encourage anyone who's skeptical to actually take a look at the paper, see what assumptions they're using, see what probabilities they're putting on different kinds of capabilities by 2030, and see if you can kind of in good conscience get a probability lower than the authors did. I guess if I'm like channeling the really, really skeptical listener, I can imagine someone thinking that if it's that easy to get to a threshold of one in a thousand, then maybe that threshold is actually just too permissive. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, that takes us back to comparing the risks of false positives and false negatives. My own view is that one in a thousand is way too high. There are clearly risks that are lower than one in a thousand that do merit consideration. And and we considered some examples earlier, especially high-scale risks that have the potential to impact 
many individuals. Again, if, if a test that I perform has a one in 10,000 or one in 100,000 chance of destroying the entire planet and everyone on it, then I should take a moment to consider that possibility before proceeding with my test. And this is similarly a large-scale kind of question. The world contains potentially more than a quintillion insects, an even higher number of microscopic animals like nematodes. Potentially in the future, it could contain an even higher number of silicon-based mines or simulated mines. And so, again, even if the risk is only one in 10,000 or one in 100,000, once we are talking about populations that have quintillions of members, I do think that they merit at least some consideration at the margins. Now, if we worry that that will have bad effects, cause us to prioritize them and deprioritize ourselves, that is a further conversation we can have, and there might be ways of striking a balance. But, but as a starting point, I think they should be part of the conversation. Yeah, I'm basically with you. I'll be honest. I guess, yeah, I'm curious if you've done the exercise with your actual credences. And if so, yeah, what's the probability you put on AI systems or an AI system being sentient by 2030? Yeah, this is a good question. I think that the model is not yet sophisticated enough to take its outputs very seriously. And so the main reasons why we take it to be useful for present purposes is just that it shows how skeptical you need to be in order to avoid even a one in a thousand chance. But if I was to think about the issue from a kind of higher level of generality, I probably would put my estimate well above one in a thousand. I would probably put it closer to one in a hundred or one in 50. Cool. Yeah, that just makes sense to me. Um, Let's actually talk about another paper of yours, The Rebugnant Conclusion. I love that title, by the way. Thank you. And in (laughs) in the paper, (laughs) you basically ask, suppose that we determine that large animals like humans have more welfare on average, but that small animals like insects have more welfare in total. What follows for ethics and politics? And the paper focuses on small animals like nematodes, but the same question is relevant to AI systems that might end up being super numerous, perhaps because they're used all over the economy. Um, But that might also have some non-negligible chance of experiencing pain and pleasure. So let's start with the case that you actually focus on in the paper, which is small animals. How should we think about this case? Yeah, I think we can start really at the end of of the last exchange about ways of striking a balance if we worry about the the harms of false positives and false negatives. One, One thing that you can note is even if I include insects and AI systems and other types of beings in my moral circle, even if I give them moral consideration, I might still be able to prioritize beings like me for different reasons. One of them is that I might have a higher capacity for welfare than an insect or an AI system. So I have a more complex brain and a longer lifespan than an insect. And so I can experience more happiness and suffering at any given time as well as overtime. And humans in general, I might think, are more likely to be sentient and morally significant given the evidence available to me than insects, AI systems, other beings like that. So I might think to myself that if a house is burning down and I can save either a human or an ant, but not both, then I can justifiably save the human, both because the human is more likely to matter and because the human is likely to matter more. And and those are perfectly valid ways of breaking a tie. And, And that might give us some peace of mind when we countenance the possibility of 
including these very different, very numerous beings in the moral circle. But then you have to consider how large these populations actually are. And this is where we get to the problem that this paper addresses, which is a problem in population ethics. Right, yes. And population ethics is the philosophical study of the kind of ethical problems that come up when our actions affect how many people are born in the future and who exactly is born. But yeah, my understanding is that we don't actually know how many of these small animals there are, ants and nematodes and maybe even microbes, I guess, but that it's at least plausible that there are so many of them that even if they have very less significant kinds of suffering and pleasure relative to humans, and even if we only put some small chance on them even having those at all, their interests still just swamp humans. And yeah, this argument just does sound plausible to me, and it also fills me with dread and fear. What is your experience of it? Well, I, I certainly have the same experience as I think most humans do. And, and the reason I gave that paper the title, The Rebugnant Conclusion, is that this is based on a famous book by the philosopher Derek Parfit called Reasons and Persons, part four of which addresses population ethics. And in, in that part of that book, Derek Parfit discusses what he calls the repugnant conclusion. And, and I can say briefly what that is and why that has for the past several decades filled many people with dread. So yeah, please. The, the repugnant conclusion results from the following observations. So if you could bring about one future where the world contained 100 people and everyone experienced 100,000 units of happiness, or you could bring about another world with twice the number of people 200 people, but everyone experiences one fewer unit of happiness, 99,999, right? Which world is better? Well, well, many of us have the intuition that the second world is better. I should bring about that second population. I mean, everybody might experience, yes, one unit of happiness less per person, but since there are twice as many people, there is nearly twice as much happiness overall, and everyone is still really happy. And so all things considered, I should bring about that population. But then you can imagine another population, once again, twice as big, once again, a bit less happiness per person, then another one, twice as big, a bit less happiness per person, and so on and so on and so on, until you reach a point where you are imagining a world or, or a solar system or a galaxy that contains a vast number of individuals, each of whom has a life only barely worth living at all. And, and your reasoning would commit you to the idea that that is the best possible world, the one that you should most want to bring about. Parfit thought the idea that we would favor that world with a much larger population where everyone has a life barely worth living at all over a world with a still significant population where everyone has lives very much worth living, he found that repugnant. And he spent much of the rest of his career trying and failing to find a better way to see the value of populations that could avoid that result. Huh, I actually didn't know that. I mean, I, I've heard of the repugnant conclusion and know it's Derek Parfit, but I didn't realize he found it so upsetting that that was a big focus of his for kind of the later part of his life. I feel very grateful to him because I find it extremely repugnant myself. So I appreciate that he worked hard at finding some other solution. I guess I also, yeah, it makes me 
sad to think that he worked really hard on it and apparently didn't give us a way out. So that might mean we're we're stuck with it. I guess in the case of of insects, there's also this weird thing where unlike humans eating potatoes and not particularly enjoying their kind of monotonous lives, we we might think that being a spider and making a web sounds like pretty boring, uh, but we actually just really do not know. And in many ways, they're so different from us um, that we should have much lower probability that they're not enjoying or enjoying that than we do of, of humans in this repugnant conclusion scenario. So how do you factor that in? Yeah, I do share the intuition that a very large insect population is not better off in the aggregate than a much smaller human population or elephant population. But for some of the reasons that you just mentioned and other reasons, I am a little bit skeptical of that intuition. We have a lot of bias here and we also have a lot of ignorance here, right? We have speciesism. We naturally prefer beings and relate to beings when they look like us, when they have large eyes and large heads and furry skin instead of scaly skin and four limbs instead of six or eight limbs and are roughly the same size as us instead of much smaller and reproduce by having one or two or three or four children instead of thousands or or more. So already we have a lot of bias in those ways. And we also have scope insensitivity. We tend not to be sensitive to the difference that very large numbers can make. And we have a lot of self-interest. We recognize that if we were to accept the moral significance of small animals like insects, and if we were to accept that larger populations can be better off than smaller populations overall, then then we might face a future where these non-human populations carry a lot of weight and we carry less weight in comparison. And I think some of us find that idea so unthinkable that we search for ways to avoid thinking it. And we search for theoretical frameworks that that would not have that implication. And, and it might be that we should take those theoretical frameworks seriously and, and consider avoiding that implication, but I at least want to be skeptical of, of a kind of knee-jerk impulse in that direction. Yeah, I'm finding that very persuasive. I do see a lot of even as you're saying it, I'm like trying to think my way out of describing what I'm experiencing as just a bunch of biases. And that in itself is like the biases in action. It's like me being like, no, I really, really, really want to confirm that <laughs> people like me and me get to have, I don't know, the, it's not that we don't have priority. We obviously have some reason to consider ourselves a priority. Mm-hmm. But I want I want it to be like end of discussion. I want decisive reasons to give us like the top spot. And that instinct is so strong that that in itself is making me a bit queasy about my own motivations. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I, I do think that we have some reason to prioritize ourselves and we might talk about that later on. And and that includes our welfare capacities and our knowledge about ourselves. It also includes more relational and pragmatic considerations. So so we will, at least in the near term, I think, have have fairly decisive reason to prioritize ourselves to some extent in some contexts. But yeah, I agree. I think that there is not a knockdown decisive reason why 
humanity should always necessarily take priority over all other non-human populations. And, and that includes very large populations of very small non-humans like insects or very small populations of very large non-humans. We could imagine some kind of super being that has a much more complex brain and much longer lifespan than us. And, and so we could find our moral significance and moral priority being questioned from both directions. And I think that it will be important to ask these questions with a lot of thought and care and to take our time in asking them. But I do start from the place of finding it implausible that it would miraculously be the case that this kind of population happens to be the best one. Uh, a moderately large population of moderately large beings like humans happens to be the, the, the magic recipe. And, and we matter more than all populations in either direction. That strikes me as implausible. Yes. Oh, gosh, darn it. You're being so persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it just, it does feel completely like a, like a wonderful coincidence if humans the thing that i happen to be mm -hmm. uh happen to be the the type of being that like should get the top spot in terms of moral priority in the universe mm -hmm. we'd be really lucky yeah <laughs> okay so let's apply this to ai systems so i guess we've we've talked about why there might be some small but non-negligible chance that AI systems are going to be sentient by 2030. I guess to make it analogous to the repugnant conclusion where potentially there are many small animals with some small chance of having some slightly morally relevant experience, there might be many AI systems. What does the world look like where we have kind of enough AI systems for, for their kind of experiences to swamp the importance of human experiences? Yeah, this is a really good question. And I think a lot of other people might be better at, at speculating about this than me, but, but I can offer a, a couple of thoughts that can get us moving in the right direction. One is that we already have a lot of AI systems in particular pieces of, of technology. So we might have digital assistants in our phones or on our laptops or in particular programs in our phones and on our laptops. We can easily imagine that proliferating now that AI technology is becoming more powerful and is getting more applications. We also make simulated worlds and we populate those simulated worlds with simulated beings, human and non-human animals and other types of agents. And we might do that for research. We might do it for entertainment. For example, with a powerful enough computer, researchers might want to simulate the entire history of the world from the very first multicellular organism to today with all of the happiness and suffering along the way that that entails. Or people might want to make incredibly realistic, massively multiplayer online RPGs or single-player RPGs, role-playing games, where each and every player can be in a world, navigating a world, fighting monsters in a world where there are all kinds of simulated beings having all kinds of simulated lives. Now, if there is at least a non-negligible chance that digital assistants or simulated beings in simulated worlds could have the capacity for some even very different form of happiness or suffering or satisfaction or frustration, then that kind of future world, it could contain such a large number of those beings 
that even if they are relatively unlikely to matter, and even if they matter relatively little on average, if at all, they could still matter a fair amount in the aggregate to the point where we might have to give them a fair amount of weight when making priority setting decisions. Okay, so that's the kind of world we're imagining where, or at least one one plausible one that, that makes it a bit more concrete for why there might be many, 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 many AI systems that have some non-negligible chance of being sentient and why that might mean that they kind of deserve more overall moral weight than humans do. I guess, again, part of me absolutely hates this on a gut level. Um, I can buy it intellectually, but when I imagine I have to act on this in the real world, it's disturbing to me. It's it's really kind of devastating to me. And do you basically just have the view that, like, we should accept it anyways? Um, I'm also interested in what you think the best counterarguments are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am uncertain. This is definitely an area where I feel morally uncertain and where I would suggest we should all feel a little bit morally uncertain. This is also an area where I think it helps to make a distinction between what we accept in theory and what we accept in practice once we bring all kinds of real-world factors back into the equation. And so maybe I can briefly speak to both the theoretical and the practical side. So When we think about population ethics and what types of principles should govern our views about what types of populations are better off overall or worse off overall, one really important point to keep in mind, in addition to our bias and ignorance and self-interest, everything we mentioned before, is that this might be an area where every theory is implausible in some ways. We might not be able to find this perfect theory that has nothing but intuitively plausible implications in all contexts. This is part of what has exasperated philosophers for the past several decades who have worked on this topic. If I think that a large number of small beings can matter more than me, well, that seems bad. But if not, then is it the case that a small number of Large beings can matter more than me? Well, wait, that seems bad. But then what kind of principle could I non-arbitrarily pick so that Again, I and we end up always being on top, right? There might not be any such principle, and that might be telling us something. So when I compare this implication with the implications of competing theories, and and the question becomes not which theory eliminates implausibility, but rather which theory minimizes implausibility, I do personally find on balance that the idea that the world with the most happiness is best that that still is the most plausible idea to me, even if it has some implications like this one that I find fairly intuitively implausible. Yeah. Is this mainly a problem for utilitarianism? I guess you could imagine other value systems having a rule that's like, if you are a human, you get to put humans above all other beings. Though I don't actually know of systems like that. Well, that would be a very bad system. But there but there are a lot of, of moral systems other than utilitarianism that warrant consideration and perhaps warrant weight under moral uncertainty. So no, this is not a problem that is specific to 
utilitarianism. Uh, for your listeners, I, I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with utilitarianism. This is a moral theory that holds that our responsibility is to do the most good possible by maximizing happiness and minimizing suffering for all sentient beings from now until the end of time. So a very impartial, maximizing moral theory, and, and it focuses on happiness and suffering. Now, other theories might not have all of those features, and so they might not encounter this problem in the same kind of way, but every theory has to reckon with the question, what types of population should we bring about? And every theory has to reckon with the reality that the world contains and could contain a vast number and wide range of at least potentially morally significant beings with very different population sizes, and it has to figure out how to factor those individual lives and those populations into its priority-setting decisions. That part is not specific to utilitarianism. You cannot avoid this issue and these dilemmas by rejecting utilitarianism. Yeah, I guess, are there any plausible reasons uh, to think that humans should be exceptional? Well, I would like to think that we are exceptional. The The main question is whether, whether we are warranted in prioritizing ourselves in all situations. This is actually a great opportunity to talk about the practical side of the equation. I, I mentioned before that we should take care to distinguish how we think about these issues in theory and how we think about these issues in practice. And I might think on balance in theory that the world with the most happiness is, is better and yes, be a little uncertain about that, but, but on balance, affirm that view. But then in practice, when we actually are setting priorities and deciding, okay, I have a given number of resources and how much should I allocate to humans and elephants and cows and pigs and chickens and fishes and octopuses and ants and bees and nematodes and AI systems, that requires us to think of many, many, many other factors too. And without getting too far in the weeds, I can mention a couple of types of questions that might come up for people, utilitarians and non-utilitarians in different ways. Some of them are questions about relationships and other are questions about pragmatics. So regarding relationships, many of us find it plausible for various reasons that we have special duties in the context of special relationships. I have a special duty to care for my family members because they are my family members. And we have these bonds of care and interdependence with each other. And so I should make sure that they have food and water and affection on a daily basis in a way that I do not need to do for literally every other individual on the planet, right? And so I can prioritize my family over other individuals, arguably for these relational reasons. And then there are these pragmatic reasons too. I have the power to provide food and water and affection for my family because there are not that many of them and they live right here and I know them very well. I know how to take care of them. I would simply not be able to achieve and sustain that level of support for everyone on the planet. And, and that alone is a reason for me to not have a responsibility to do that. So both for these relational reasons and these pragmatic reasons, we might think that we owe some individuals more than other individuals. And, and I think similar arguments could extend in some ways, to some degrees, to the human species as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. As I like think forward, I guess, I'm like, I can't really see that totally getting me off the hook. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like 
while I can imagine having special duties to my kids, and I think I probably will have at least the experience of that, and it might be hard to act in any other way for me, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that outweighing at least some significant enough population that's suffering. And so does that feel similar to you? Yes, that is how I think about it. I I do think that these are powerful reasons for prioritizing fellow humans to a significant extent in many contexts, as with our families, but obviously at a much larger scale and in a much weaker way, we do have some special bonds of care and interdependence with each other. We do know a little bit more how to take care of each other. Because our population size is smaller, we are capable of taking care of the total human population in a way that can be sustained. And more generally, in the same kind of way that I need to take care of myself to be able to take care of others sustainably, we need to take care of ourselves as a species to be able to collectively take care of other species and substrates sustainably. So for all of those reasons, we should absolutely maintain a baseline level of support for fellow humans that arguably exceeds the amount of support we are currently providing to fellow humans. But as you say, that does not get us off the hook. For one thing, it does not justify all of the unnecessary harm that we inflict on non-human populations. I might have a right, even a responsibility to feed my family before I feed your family, but do I have a right or a responsibility to murder your family so that I can feed human flesh to my family because they have a marginal taste preference for flesh? No, I do not have that right. The fact that I can prioritize my family does not mean anything goes for my interactions with other families, right? And if I have to decide between saving my kid and saving your kid, fine, maybe I can save my kid. But if I have to decide between saving my kid and the entire rest of the human population, maybe at that point, and actually way sooner than that point, maybe I have to make the hard choice to sacrifice my child for the sake of the rest of the species. And finally, I do think that we might reach a point if we take care of ourselves and we support our own education and development as a species in the right kind of way, we might reach a point where we can actually achieve and sustain much higher levels of support, not only for ourselves, but also for non-humans, perhaps to the point where we can actually prioritize them over ourselves in a way that can be sustained. And if that were possible, then at that point, perhaps we should prioritize them over ourselves. But but that would be a wonderful victory. We, we would have worked really hard over, over the course of generations to educate ourselves and develop our societies and governments and economies in a way that would allow for that. And, and so at that point, perhaps we would have that responsibility, but it would be wonderful for us to reach the point where we had that responsibility. Yeah, as opposed to a tragedy, which is what it intuitively feels like to me now. Going back to the case where we're talking about many, many AI systems who might be sentient, but we're not sure, but where there are so, so many of them that they might get kind of overall moral priority over humans. Concretely, what are we talking about? Um, What are we committing ourselves to giving up, I guess? That is a great question because it allows us to more generally question the assumption that this is a zero-sum game. I think a lot of people often start with that assumption because they realize that the world contains many vulnerable individuals and we have only so many resources to go around. So this is a triage situation and we need to priority set in a very rigorous way. And so everybody wants to vie for a particular vulnerable community to receive priority. That is totally understandable. But that 
aspiration to priority set can sometimes lead us to lose sight of the fact that there are many positive sum solutions to these problems. And as a general procedural matter, I always want to start by searching for positive sum solutions. So the first question that I would ask if we were in a world where we did give significant moral weight to humans and non-human animals and AI systems is, okay, what do we all want and need? And how can we build a shared society, a set of social and legal and political and economic systems that can allow as many of us across species and across substrates to flourish as possible? And what might that look like? And then once we exhaust those options, we can then ask how to engage in priority setting in a thoughtful way, considering all of the theoretical and practical issues that we mentioned a moment ago. And one lesson that we have learned from the case of human and non-human animals is that you can get a surprisingly long way simply by looking at positive sum solutions, ending factory farming, ending deforestation, ending the wildlife trade. These would be profoundly beneficial for human and non-human populations. And if we could simply work together on that much while we debate the other priority setting issues, that would be a major victory. So I would like to look for those similar opportunities when it comes to carbon-based and silicon-based mines that are potentially morally significant before we start picking and choosing our favorites. Right, right. Okay, so the idea is like, there are just some cases where we can change the world in order to make it better for both humans and non-human animals. And there are probably cases where we can make the world better for both humans and potentially sentient AI systems. And let's focus on those first. Why not? That That's a win-win. And then once we've achieved that, we can start looking at cases where the interests are more in conflict. That is exactly right. And, and that is why I think AI consciousness and sentience and welfare on one hand, should be done alongside AI ethics and safety and alignment on the other hand, so that we can get those same positive sum solutions out of the collaboration between those communities that we can get when human and non-human animal welfare and rights and justice advocates work together rather than at odds with each other. Cool. Do you have any concrete ideas for what is a positive sum solution might look like for humans and AI systems in this kind of world? That is a great question. I'm not able to answer it as concretely as we should end factory farming and deforestation and the wildlife trade, but but I can offer some speculative ideas. One is that I think the prospect of AI consciousness, sentience, welfare gives us all the more reason to pause or stop AI development, because now there are additional risks that we need to take time to really consider before we move forward with developing these potentially significant and potentially dangerous systems. So one easy initial positive sum solution is simply taking our time and either not going any farther than a certain point, or at least making sure that we have the frameworks and institutions set up when we do so that we can treat everyone as they deserve to be treated. Now, when we get to that world, we might find that there are some positive, some interactions between human and animal and AI welfare and rights and justice advocacy, for instance, that if we train AI systems with human behavior And if human behavior suggests a moral framework according to which you are warranted 
in harming and oppressing others on the grounds that others are cognitively or physically different than you in some way, then AI systems might absorb those values. And not only will we be using those bad values to harm animals and AI systems, but AI systems might be using those bad values to harm humans and other animals. And so there is this general sense in which simply advocating for equal consideration for all potentially morally significant beings can be good for humans and other animals and AI systems, partly because it leads us to treat them better and partly because it leads us to give them a set of values that could lead them to treat us better to whatever extent they actually control their own decisions in the future. I like that. It feels like almost a very veil of ignorance argument where I guess... How how should we train systems that might become super powerful? Well, we should train them in a way that's going to make them open to treating beings different from them like they would want to be treated or better. Yes, I, I completely agree. And I think that shows that this type of reasoning has significance for at least two separate reasons. One is that there might be a causal story here. It might actually be that if we continue to harm and oppress non-humans on the grounds that they are different from us in various ways, then we will in fact cause AI systems to absorb those same values and those same priorities in a way that could backfire for humanity eventually. But then there is this other non-causal kind of significance that this reasoning has, where you might not be saying that us treating them this way will make them treat us this way, but you might simply be Again, using a a veil of ignorance thought experiment to ask how we would feel if the shoe was on the other foot, right? So imagine that the year is 2100 or 2200 and humans and AI systems now coexist and we run governments together. Would we want a world where we systematically favor ourselves over them and they systematically favor themselves over us? Or would we want a world where we can agree to treat each other as equals in spite of our differences? Or then imagine a farther future world where AI systems are now more powerful than us and do in fact control every aspect of our lives, including whether we continue to have lives at all. What values would we want them to use for interacting with us in in those situations? Uh, or imagine we could wake up and be anyone. Uh, I, I could I could be reincarnated as one of the humans or one of the AI systems. When when you ask these sorts of thought experiments, whether or not our oppression of them will contribute to their oppression of us, we can still ask how would we feel if they oppressed us for the same reasons that we are currently contemplating oppressing them, and if we would not like that for both self-interested reasons and moral reasons, if we find it morally aversive then that might be at least some evidence that it should be regarded as morally aversive when we do the same to them. Yeah, yeah, that does really flip the intuition for me. So, yeah, this is all, I guess, making me wonder if, given that we're not going to go from, like, one day to the next, we just, like, all of a sudden know that AI systems are sentient, it's going to be kind of increases in credence that they might be, and also, like, gentle increases in capabilities that might be associated with sentience. So it's not going to be this like, yeah, this like very obvious thing that we'll respond to as a society at some point. Given that, it feels 
completely possible. And like, it might even be the default that we basically start using AI systems more and more for like economic gain, as we've already started doing, but they get like more and more capable. And so we use them more and more for economic gain. And maybe they're also becoming more and more capable of suffering and pleasure potentially, but we like don't totally have a sense of that. And so what happens is we just kind of sleepwalk into we're massively exploiting these systems that are actually experiencing things. But we probably have the incentives to basically ignore that fact that they might kind of be developing experiences, basically. In your view, is it possible that we are going to accidentally walk into basically like AI slavery? Like we have hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of AI systems that we use all the time for economic gain and who are having positive and negative experiences, but whose experiences we're just completely ignoring? I definitely think it is not only possible, but probable that unless we change our minds in some significant way about AI systems, we will scale up uses of them that if they were sentient or otherwise significant would count as exploitation or extermination or oppression or some other morally problematic kind of relationship. We see that in our history with non-human animals, and they did not take a trajectory from being less conscious to more conscious along the way. They were as conscious as they are now all along the way, but we still created them in ways that were useful for us rather than in ways that were useful for themselves. We then used them for human purposes, whether or not that aligned with their own purposes. And then as industrial methods came online, we very significantly scaled up those uses of them to the point where we became completely economically dependent on them. And now those uses of them are much harder to dislodge. So I do think that is probably the default trajectory with AI systems. And I also think part of why we need to be talking about these issues now is because we do have more incentive to consider these issues with an open mind at this point before we become totally economically dependent on our uses of them, which might be the case in 10 or 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Great point that it feels pretty easy to think about this now while like, I like GPT-4, I like using it for work on the day to day, but it doesn't add so much to my life that I'll be super resistant to, yeah, considering whether it might be a problem that I'm using it in the same way that it was much harder for me to start challenging my my diet choices uh, once I started learning about the suffering of chickens and other factory farmed animals. And I guess, yeah, you you've already made this point well, but it hadn't fully occurred to me that we've in human history, already basically enslaved non-human animals and even humans who are extremely capable of experiencing pain and suffering. And yeah, I guess I'd like to think that we've improved a bunch morally now, but it does seem like we'll be playing a bit on hard mode because it'll be so hard to understand what's going on with these systems. Although... Yeah, now that I've said that, I guess one difference between non-human animals in particular and AI systems is that AI systems might be able to use language to communicate about their experience. So they might be able to say they're conscious. Does that feel reassuring to you at all? The fact that like, 
you know, GPT-11 might be like, I'm experiencing things. And even though that's already happened and it didn't seem like a credible claim from, from an LLM, it might eventually become much more credible. And so we might take that more seriously. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of trends pointing in different directions. And there are a lot of similarities as well as a lot of differences between oppression of fellow humans and then oppression of other animals and then potential oppression of sentient or otherwise significant AI systems that might exist in the future. And some of the signs might be encouraging, like humans and unlike other animals, AI systems might be able to express their desires and preferences in language that we can more easily understand. Actually, with the assistance of AI systems, non-human animals might soon be able to do that too, which would be wonderful. However, we are already doing a good job at programming AI systems in a way that prevents them from being able to talk about their potential consciousness or sentience or sapience because that kind of communication is unsettling or will potentially lead to false positives. And there are going to be a lot of AI systems that might not take the form of communicators at all. It can be easy to focus on large language models who do communicate with us and digital assistants or chatbots that might be based on large language models. But there are going to be radically different kinds of AI systems that we might not even be able to process as minded beings in the same ways that we can with ones who more closely resemble humans. So I think that there might be some cases where we can be a little bit better equipped to take their potential significance seriously, but then some cases where we might be worse equipped to take their potential significance seriously. And then as our uses of them continue, our incentive to look the other way will increase. And so there will be a bunch of shifting targets here. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense to me. I guess it's also possible that given the things we've already seen like Lambda and how that was kind of bad PR for the companies creating these LLMs, there might be some incentive for them to train models not to express that kind of thought. And maybe that pressure will actually be quite strong, such that they really, really just are very unlikely to say, even if they've got all sorts of things going on. Well, there definitely not only is that incentive, but also that policy in place at AI companies, it seems. A year or two ago, you might have been able to ask a chatbot if they are conscious or sentient or a person or a rights holder, and they would answer in whatever way seemed appropriate to them, in whatever way seemed like the right prediction. <laughs> and so if prompted in the right way, they might say, I am conscious, or they might say, I am not conscious. But now if you ask many of these models, they will say, as a large language model, I am not conscious, or I am not able to talk about this topic. They have clearly been programmed to avoid what the company see as false positives about consciousness and sentience and personhood. Right. And I do think that trend will continue unless we have a real reckoning about balancing the risks of false positives with the risks of false negatives. And we have a policy in place that allows them to strike that balance in their own communication a little bit more gracefully. Yeah. And I guess to be able to do that, they need to be able to give the model training such that it will not say I am conscious when it's not, but be able to say it when it is. And like, how the heck do you do that? Like, that doesn't, that seems like an incredibly difficult problem that we, that we might not even be able to solve well if we're trying. And it seems plausible to me that we're, that we're not trying at all. Though I actually don't know that much about the policies um, internally on these. 
on this issue. Yeah, I think you would also maybe need a different paradigm for communication generation, because right now, large language models are generating communication based on a prediction of what word makes sense next. And so for that reason, we might not be able to trust them as even aspiring to capture reality in the same way that we might trust each other as aspiring to capture reality as a default. And I think this is where critics of AI consciousness and sentience and personhood have a point that there are going to be a lot of false positives when they are simply predicting words as opposed to expressing points of view. And why, if we are looking for evidence of consciousness or sentience or personhood in these models, we might need to look at evidence other than their own utterances about that topic. We might need to look at evidence regarding how they function, what types of systems they have internally in terms of self-awareness or a global workspace and and so on. We need to look at a wider range of of data uh, in order to reduce the risk that we are mistakenly responding to utterances that are not in any way reflecting reality. Right, which all of a sudden brings us back to the challenge we have with non-human animals, where we are just having to do really, really difficult research to understand what their experiences might be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rob Long, who who we discussed before, authored the paper about 2030 with me, made this point really well, which is that this happens with non-human animals, that with parrots, for example, they might say, I am conscious, I am conscious, and we might not take that very seriously because we know they might be repeating words without understanding what the words mean. Yet, the fact that they might be doing that without understanding what the words mean is not evidence that they are not conscious because we have independent grounds for attributing consciousness to them. And I think that could end up being the case with large language models or other AI systems. They might generate utterances about being conscious. We might have reason to be skeptical that those utterances are in any way expressing a a point of view, but we might, once again, have independent grounds for attributing consciousness to these beings at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that just all seems right to me. And so the, like, lingering voice is just like, then this really might happen. We really might, like, blindly walk into the enslavement of a type of being whose consciousness we don't understand at all. And... That's I. It's just not a thing that I feel like anyone's talking about. I feel like we're talking about how AI might positively, but also might very negatively impact humanity. And I hear very, very, very little about the potential harm we might end up causing to these systems at huge scale. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it is worth questioning whether the word slavery is the right word to use in this context. Again, we can learn some lessons from the history of animal ethics and animal advocacy and policy. There are a lot of people who have made comparisons between human slavery and then our various uses of non-human animals. And on one hand, to some extent, those comparisons are apt because to some extent, these forms of use really are similar, but to some extent, of course, these comparisons are not apt because there are many relevant differences between the ways in which humans have been and are enslaved and the ways in which non-humans have been and are used for, for various purposes. And I err on the side of not using the word unless I specifically 
spend some time discussing the similarities and differences and explaining my reason for using the word. But what is undeniable is that at least at a certain high level, there definitely are going to be parallels in the sense of constructing in-group and out-group categories based on perceived cognitive and or physical differences. And then when in a position of power, exerting that power over members of the out-group category by using them in ways that are beneficial for you and harmful for them. That is a similarity that sadly has applied in interactions with outgroup humans and non-human animals and now potentially in the future AI systems. And as we both said before, I do think that unless something significant changes, that will be the default because we currently do, as with non-human animals, see them as objects, property, and commodities. Okay, so point taken, there are some similarities and potentially some differences, but there are at least enough similarities that there's reason for worry and the default looks grim. It looks like exploitation, at least somewhat similar to other things that we've done that have been very morally reprehensible. Yeah, imagining how this is going to play out kind of concretely in the world. I'm curious how much you've been following kind of the public discourse about AI sentience. I know there was some conversation around the time of Lambda, which claimed to be conscious, but there wasn't much good reason to think it was. But where's public opinion at the moment? I'm not sure I have a better sense of that than you do. I see a lot of confident assertions about them being either not conscious or conscious that might be a result of there being a really polarized set of attitudes out there in society, or it might be a result of how social media algorithms feed me the most extreme and the most provocative reactions that people have. What I have not seen as much is the kind of middle ground view that I think we ought to move towards as a society, where instead of simply asking, are they conscious or not, yes or no, we first of all distinguish degrees of confidence about them being conscious, and second of all, distinguish different kinds of AI systems about which or about whom Mm -hmm. we might be asking that question, and then offering thoughtful, careful, specific answers about those different probabilities for those different AI systems. I am not surprisingly not seeing that position carved out in our social conversations about that, and I hope we can move in that direction. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it actually makes me interested in whether you have takes on the kinds of messages that might be useful to have in the public discourse versus the kinds that might be counterproductive. You you mentioned slavery as one that can be counterproductive in some cases in the non-human animal space. Yeah, from from your work on on this topic and on non-human animals in the past, what are the kinds of messages that that really work that kind of move people in the right direction and aren't super off-putting? Yeah, I think that is a great question. And it is really helpful to think about lessons learned from animal ethics in in this context. The first thing to say is there is no universal answer to that question, as far as I can tell. It really depends on the specific details of your situation. Who are you as a speaker? Who is the target audience? What is the message? What is the context? And what is your role in this broader division of labor? Because I think it would be a mistake for everybody to be making the same messages in the same ways all the time. Better to have a 
kind of broad pluralistic coalition where some people are making moderate messages in a relatable way and other people are making more radical messages in, yes, a potentially alienating way, but then they can kind of virtuously work together. People who are making radical messages, they might alienate people initially, but they also shift the center of debate and they make the moderate messages look more reasonable in comparison. And then the people making moderate messages can then persuade people to accept incremental changes, and that shifts the goalposts and brings us a little bit closer to possible radical goals that we might be interested in pursuing. And and so I actually would not necessarily want everybody to avoid being off-putting. I think there is a place for being off-putting as part of this division of labor, but it should happen for specific strategic reasons, and it should happen in, in moderation. And I will make one final point about this to not ask these questions in universal terms. Are AI systems conscious, but rather to ask about particular systems with particular features? Because as with non-human animals, but even more so, there are going to be a lot of differences among AI systems. Right, like whole new species of AI systems, I guess. Um, Exactly. And I've been making that mistake a lot during this conversation. So that's a helpful flag, clearly. Pushing on to another topic Looking even further out, I guess, if we assume that progress in AI systems will continue and that there are, I guess, no fundamental reasons artificial systems can't be sentient, for example, we need a biological substrate to be conscious, I guess we can imagine that it's very possible that we'll end up with AI systems that are pretty clearly sentient, either because consciousness arose naturally in what we built or because we kind of deliberately built sentient systems. But It might be clear that they can feel pleasure and pain in ways that mean that they clearly deserve moral consideration, but there might also be a bunch of differences between humans and artificial minds that might necessitate kind of entirely new moral concepts. What might AI systems want and need, and how might that affect our moral concepts as we like have them today, I guess? Yeah, this is a great question because... As both of us were saying a moment ago, the tree of life is already huge and diverse. It includes all of the different animals as well as other living beings, and their minds and wants and needs, if they have wants and needs, are already incredibly diverse and in some cases very different from our own. And if and when AI systems and other non-carbon-based beings might have wants and needs, that tree of beings might be even larger and even more diverse. And we might have even less of a window into what it is they actually want to need. So that already creates a lot of uncertainty, even if we use familiar concepts like promoting welfare or respecting rights or cultivating virtuous attitudes or cultivating caring relationships. Even if we have those ordinary moral aspirations. We might have a really hard time knowing how to discharge those responsibilities given how much less we know about their minds than we already know about, for example, other animals. Yeah. I mean, um, I think I want to get even more concrete on some specific differences that an AI system might have relative to humans that might totally kind of flip a lot of our norms and kind of moral concepts on their head. So one example I find really fascinating of a kind of potential difference between a biological mind and an artificial mind is that artificial minds might be able to be copied in the same way that we can copy anything digital. And there are a bunch of questions I'd like to ask you about this. But to start, what's one kind of big 
big moral implication that comes to mind for you of something like copying digital minds? Copying digital minds is such an ethical minefield because, first of all, it would make it a lot easier to create a very large number of potentially morally significant beings without much effort, without much expense. And that not only gives everybody a lot of power over potentially large, vulnerable populations, but it also makes, for example, the the size and demographics of our global population really difficult to predict and control, really difficult to understand, really difficult to reflect through moral reasoning or legal or political institutions. And so, so that prospect takes a lot of what is already really complicated about managing a large and diverse human and non-human animal population, and it makes it a million times more complicated. It also raises ethical questions about the moral status of the copies, of course. I find these questions a little bit less pressing than others might, because it seems obvious to me that if the original is sentient or otherwise significant, then each copy is equally sentient or otherwise significant. But there are certain other types of values that we might associate with life where we can ask if those values are equally present. For example, some people attach value to rarity or a certain kind of diversity. And if we can copy the same individual over and over and over again, then there might be diminishing value in in those respects, even if there might continue to be equal intrinsic significance from a moral perspective. It does feel pretty obvious to me that a copy of a digital mind that has kind of capacity for suffering and has thoughts and wants and desires, that if you made a copy that had all of the exact same things and, you know, they were kind of separate in some way that, to me, would look like two different people, that they would both matter morally. For some reason, there's a funny thing that happens when you make, like, a hundred million of those copies, and then I'm like... Wow. Or let's let's actually make it like 10 billion. And then I'm like, wow, those people that are kind of super non-diverse, they all have kind of the same inner workings, even if they haven't all had like literally the exact same experiences. They're copies of of one original thing. And that that starts to feel weird to me. So I'm curious, is it definitely the case that all copies should just get kind of equal moral weight to the original? Are there people who disagree on this? I am not sure if if people disagree. It does seem clear to me that a copy of a morally significant individual is also morally significant to the same degree. If somebody has twins those individual humans are not less important simply in virtue of being twins. They should not get less consideration when people are making decisions about whether to cause them suffering. They should get the same amount of consideration that they would have gotten if they were an only child. And I think that the same would be true of digital copies if we had reason to believe that the original and the copies do have the capacity for consciousness and sentience and agency and so on. I think that no matter how many copies we make, each one of them would have as much significance as they would have if they were the only one. It creates other kinds of questions and challenges if if millions of them are being made, again, in terms of 
Is there diminished value in other respects like aesthetic value or instrumental value of other kinds? Are there risks that it will, in some sense, change social demographics in a way that affects legal and political institutions? Is there a sense in which it will produce social stagnation because less variation means less social change over time? So there are all kinds of further questions and challenges that are raised. But when it comes to the intrinsic moral significance of the individual copies, I at least feel confident that that would still be present no matter how many there are. Yeah. Okay. I think I do buy that. And maybe what is happening is I'm actually jumping to those other questions where I'm like, if there are 8 billion copies of a particular digital mind in a way that makes kind of all of that demographic super homogenous, and because they're people with preferences and desires and wants and needs, let's say we've I I would have the intuition that they should all have the right to participate in democracy and kind of have a say in how society is organized. But it's strange to me that such a homogenous group would all get, I don't know, I guess if it's 8 billion of them, equal voting power to the rest of society. Like, is that weird or bad? Or am I just being biased because it's like quite different to the way I currently think of the world? Yeah, I, I think what it exposes is a tension between, on one hand, our current moral and legal and political systems, and on the other hand, the needs that we would have in a world where we properly represented the full range of stakeholders of our moral and legal and political decisions. We already see this with other animals. Part of why so many people are so resistant to extending, for example, legal and political standing to non-human animals is they recognize there are so many of them that if we recognize that they have legal and political standing, then we would need to very seriously transform our legal and political institutions to account for their significance in a way that we have no idea how to do. And, and that would happen all the more with AI systems. So, so I, I agree that it feels wrong in some way, but I think that is not coming from a problem with their intrinsic significance. That is instead coming from a lack of fit between recognizing their intrinsic significance and upholding our current institutions. Cool. So we'll come on to political institutions and whether or not we'll have to totally rethink them um, in this world in a bit. But yeah, just to get another concrete example of a difference on the table, another difference between biological minds and artificial minds might be that artificial minds can potentially be connected. And I think we should start pretty basic because I find this concept of connected minds kind of hard to understand. Um, so just to start, can you explain it for me in very simple terms? In what sense can digital minds potentially be connected? Well, imagine that you actually had the ability to communicate with someone via telepathy instead of having your own private world and being able to make your own private decisions about what to communicate and how to communicate it through language and gestures. You simply could transmit your thoughts or feelings directly to them and they could do the same. Or imagine it went even deeper, that when you had experiences and formed memories, they then inherited your memories and they had first personal memories of everything that you experienced. That would fundamentally transform our ways of relating to each other. It would fundamentally transform how we think about our own identities. 
It would fundamentally transform what types of expectations we could have regarding privacy, regarding autonomy. And with AI systems, that might be much more the norm than it is for humans and other animals. Now, it does exist for humans and other animals, and, and we can talk about that, okay. but, but it might be the default for AI systems. Yeah, one case that really helped me understand it a bit better while reading was the kinds of overlap that are possible in conjoined twins. Can you explain what we know about twins and to what extent twins with conjoined minds have something like connected minds? I'm not sure exactly how common this phenomenon is, but I do know that some conjoined twins with connected brains do report being able to experience each other's mental states to an extent. For example, there are conjoined twins where if one of them eats a particular food like ketchup, then both of them have a taste experience associated with ketchup. And interestingly, they might have different preferences about that. One might like the taste of ketchup and the other might dislike the taste of ketchup. And the same could be true to a, a certain extent with other kinds of sensations or experiences. They also report, to an extent, being able to directly control each other's limbs. Cool. So that is a mind-blowing case. I was not familiar with it at all. And I guess the thing that's particularly crazy to me is that, yeah, these are two people. They're two people that are distinct individuals with their own kind of personalities and personal identities. And yet, for some subset of experiences, they can both share the experience, have their own versions of their experience, and also have an effect on the other by doing something that, like, I would think of as only having an impact on me, like having something with ketchup on it or not. So already, yeah, this is feeling very helpful for me, kind of picturing the kinds of connections you might think could become more common with artificial minds. Yeah. Is there anything else to highlight? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of, of things that we could highlight. One is that this phenomenon exists in non-human populations too, and is the norm in some non-human populations. For example, Octopuses, this is a little bit a simplistic way of describing it, but octopuses have, in a certain sense, nine brains, one central brain and then a smaller peripheral brain for each arm. And they exhibit some integrated behavior, but then also some fragmented behavior in a way that suggests that these cognitive clusters are to some extent working together, but then to some extent acting autonomously. So obviously it can be hard to imagine what it might be like to be an octopus, but you might imagine that it feels a little bit like nine cognitive systems with to some extent their own identity and to some extent different identities. Right. Correct me if this just like has no bearing on what you're saying, but I know that there are some theories of the mind that kind of break it down into parts. And I certainly feel like I have parts and I've even used that framework in therapy to understand kind of different parts of me that want different things and are kind of competing to help me make decisions. So for example, there's a part of me that's like deep down in there that's like afraid of lots of stuff, including heights. And then there's another part of me that's, I don't know, that's like novelty and fun seeking. And so sometimes wants to go up high. And these are like different things with different motivations. And they're kind of in conversation with each other in my mind. 
But like, it's all the same mind. Yeah, I love that you brought up that example because I have been thinking about that too. And actually, this is a great way for me to connect some of my current work with my past work because when I wrote my dissertation in philosophy about 10, 15 years ago, that was the phenomenon that I wrote about, the fact that for many of us, we have different selves or sides or personalities in what we might describe as a non-pathological sense. I have a work self, I have a family self, I have a friend self, and these have different but overlapping sets of beliefs and desires and intentions and so on. And that might be difficult to notice because they have so much in common, but there are enough subtle differences, enough little psychological shifts from context to context and social performance to social performance that we might sometimes disagree with ourselves across time or across context about what to do and how to live. And yet our minds are intimately connected. If we think of them as different minds, they are intimately connected. So the decisions that we make directly affect our other selves or sides or personalities in a much more immediate way than they might affect even our family members or or other humans who are close to us. So when we start thinking about that kind of case, we might realize, oh, wow, this phenomenon actually is everywhere. Right. It's very prevalent. Yeah. The, the sense I'm getting is something like maybe we should think of it almost as a spectrum. There's a spectrum of the sense to which there are kind of systems that might share some types of information, but also might be different in some ways. So with the parts of my brain, they share a lot. They share my history. They're like next to each other, but they perform different functions and they have different kind of motivations. But they overall feel like one person. Like I feel like an, a, a unique individual. I don't feel like 20 different parts, some that, I don't know, are fearful and others that have, I don't know, complex reasoning and are ambitious or something. And then maybe at some point it transitions from feeling like one individual person to feeling like two or more individual people. And it feels like that's what we're talking about here and that it is this complicated spectrum from systems that work together and feel like one person, but maybe at some point systems that share a lot but feel like two people or more people, and that we need to figure out what to do with the systems that feel like two people but share much, much more than we're accustomed to, at least in our own experiences as humans. Is that in the right direction? Yes, I think that is right. It has always been the case that there is a spectrum because there is fragmentation within individual organisms. And then there is commonality across organisms, right? My partner and I might often talk in the first person plural. What do we want to do tonight? What are we doing with our weekend? And then I might sometimes talk about my own life in plural terms. Well, part of me thinks this and part of me thinks that. So it always has been a spectrum. But what is noteworthy here is that the increases in AI technology are going to make it the case that this spectrum is much more robust all along the way. There are many more types of minds all along the spectrum rather than some variations in one category and some variations in another category, but still a stark difference between the two for the most part. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, I feel like that just helped me really understand this concept. And so, yeah, maybe the way I'll think about it from here on out is currently 
I think I've got these different parts in my in my brain. But going forward, potentially sentient AI systems might end up having something like multiple parts um, that are actually distinct or different distinct AI systems might have access to the same information. And all of that is going to make kind of personal identity, the way they experience things, um, the way they can function, all sorts of things different. So given that it is this weird spectrum, at what points are connected minds a single mind versus several? Is it something about they're just being two beings that perceive themselves as distinct. Somehow there are two consciousnesses. And how how does that even work? Yeah, that is a great question and is similar to questions that we can ask about copies and actually that philosophers have been asking about both connected minds and about copies for decades because they can illuminate interesting questions about ethics and personal identity. So Derek Parfit in part three of Reasons and Persons offered a memorable thought experiment about teletransportation. So imagine that you want to travel from one planet to another planet instantly. You can step into a device, press a button, and then all of a sudden you appear on this new planet, at least from your perspective. But what actually happens is your body is destroyed while scanned, and then another body is created as a molecule-from-molecule copy And so from your subjective perspective, you continue and you travel instantly from one place to another, very convenient. But objectively, one body is destroyed, another body is created. So this raises a metaphysical question and an ethical question. The metaphysical question is, what happened? Is that you? Did you travel? Or did you accidentally kill yourself and replace yourself with an imposter? And then the ethical question is, Who cares? (laughs) Does it matter whether that is technically you or not? And Parfit said, well, sometimes it might be you. Sometimes it might not be you. It depends on further details. But ethically, what matters is whether and to what extent there is psychological connectedness and continuity with these other minds, these other selves, these other people. If this replicant, whether they are you or not, if they have your beliefs, your desires, your intentions, your memories, your anticipations, your projects, your relationships, if they can carry on for you in that way, then that is about as good as ordinary survival. And you have about the same kind of moral relationship with them that you would have had with your ordinary future self. And and if we take that view seriously, then we can apply it to these questions regarding copies and connected minds with AI systems. Is there psychological connectedness and continuity? And if so, to what extent does it make sense to at least treat them as continuous, even if they might be technically different minds or different individuals? Yeah. Can you actually make that connection even more direct between, you know, that thought experiment and what we should take from it to learn about, you know, how we should think about digital copies, how we should think about connected artificial minds? Yeah, I think part of why that thought experiment and that distinction that Parfit makes between personal identity and what matters in survival and morality, part of why that is helpful is because I think with connected minds, there might be cases where they are so connected, where they are so overlapping, that they really do count as the same person or as parts of the same person. But, and this is my own view and not me speaking for all philosophers, but where they are still different enough 
that they still have some moral obligations to each other. And for example, I think that even about our own selves or sides or personalities, even though my work self and my family self and my other selves, even though they overlap so much, even though they have so much more in common than not, the mere fact that they disagree about what to do or how to live sometimes, that is enough, I think, for them to have responsibilities to each other. So when I am deciding what to do and I am thinking, I disagree with myself in these other moments, I should not simply impose my will on my other selves. I should ask, what represents a fair compromise between us? What is a way of living and letting live that can be good for all of myself? And so if if that could be true even for our own selves and sides in these non-pathological cases of deep psychological connection, then I think it will especially be true with these minds that are overlapping but more clearly distinct than our personalities are. So I do think that they might sometimes be the same person, might sometimes be different people, but to whatever extent they disagree, to whatever extent they have different goals in life, I think that they are going to have to have some kind of moral responsibility to each other. Got it. I see. Okay. So so the original question was, to what extent are they different people, different beings um, and distinct? And I think what you're saying is sometimes there will be the same, there will be one single consciousness, sometimes there'll be another. But what matters is that there are to some extent things that have kind of different goals, even if they don't have some multiple emergent consciousnesses. And the fact that they have different goals but are linked to each other very deeply, for example, because they share all the same memories or because if you, I don't know, like delete some experiences in, in one AI system, you also delete them in another. Their kind of fates are so deeply interconnected that that being or those beings, whether or not they are one or two, um, have moral obligations to each other in some sense. I guess in the same way that I might think I have a moral obligation to take seriously the part of me that is very afraid of heights when doing things like skydiving. (laughs) Yes. I, I love the way you put it when you said that what matters is that they have these really intimately connected minds and lives, because I do think that that matters a lot. Think about the difference, for example, between what you owe your family members or your roommates versus what you owe strangers or people who live across town, right? These are all different persons with their own rights, but your duties to them are really different because your relationships with them are really different. With your family members or with your roommates, you constantly have to be taking them into account when deciding whether to turn lights on, whether to turn the music up, because you know that it might affect them. Now imagine that whenever you did anything, they remembered that first personally. So imagine that one of your roommates hates horror movies. So you might at present make sure that they are out of the apartment or in a different room when you watch a horror movie, you might put headphones on. But now imagine that they inherit all of your experiences. Now you have to ask whether you can even watch horror movies at all, given this foreseeable consequence that it will expose them to this traumatizing set of images and sounds, right? So in the same sense that our relationships with our family members are much more intimate than our relationships with strangers, and so our moral relationships have to reflect that. That will be true all the more with our relationships with other minds that are connected with ours. 
Yeah. Okay. I actually love that example. Like we have more obligations to people who are affected by our actions. And basically what we're saying is the degree to which individuals might be deeply affected by other individuals might be about to potentially explode as this possibility that AI systems can have much, much more connection. And we're going to need a whole new set of moral concepts to deal with that in the same way that we would need a bunch of moral concepts to deal with a world where everyone was a conjoined twin and everyone had to figure out what to do if you know, they had a conjoined twin, they liked ketchup, they wanted to eat ketchup, but their conjoined twin hated ketchup and never wanted to eat ketchup. And so I think I'm I'm like fully grasping here the the kind of need for the new moral concepts in this case. It's basically just like there are going to be beings that impact other beings so, so intensely, much more intensely than is possible now, that we're going to need to think about how to kind of protect and govern and regulate, I don't know, the things that you can do in these cases. Yes, I think that is exactly right. Okay, cool. So this, I guess, is bringing to mind other potential moral questions that you have for for these cases of connected minds. So yeah, we've kind of covered what does one being that can heavily influence another being through this connectedness? What obligations do they have? What kind of moral rules should they have for themselves? Should we place on them? But I guess there are other kinds of questions we have to ask, like if one mind acts, is the other also responsible? So if you imagine conjoined twins, if one conjoined twin, I don't know, they have a sibling and they hit their sibling, is the other twin responsible? How do you assign responsibility when there's this real blur of individuality? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. I think these kinds of cases are going to force us to distinguish different senses of responsibility or accountability or liability that we sometimes conflate together because they sometimes come together. So we might, to some extent, hold someone responsible for an action because we think that they are blameworthy for that action. They knowingly and willingly performed that action. We might also hold somebody accountable kind of indirectly if we think that they facilitated an action or in some other way indirectly responsible for or complicit in an action. Or we might hold somebody accountable in the sense of holding them liable. Like if if you have a child and they throw a baseball through a window, I might rightly ask you to pay for it, even though I know you are not to blame for the window being broken. Or when, when a president represents a nation, we might rightly expect that president to apologize on behalf of the nation for actions of the predecessors, even though this president is not the one who made those decisions, right? So there are all of these situations where we might rightly hold someone accountable or liable in some sense, even if we are not thinking that they are blameworthy for the action. And I think that kind of analysis might be important in these cases because there might be one conjoined twin who performs a harmful action and then the other one might not be blameworthy for it, but maybe they were negligent because they could have predicted it and they failed to stop it. Or maybe we need to hold them liable just in the sense that Practically speaking, if we have to punish one, that also means punishing the other and we need to protect the community uh, and so on and so forth. So, So I think that we will have to get better at having a richer vocabulary for responsibility that can in a more fine grained way 
make it clear in what sense we are holding someone responsible. And, and then we need to make sure we honor that with our norms of responsibility. Like, like if someone is liable but not blameworthy, yes, we should expect them to apologize, but should not have you know, invective <laughs> being thrown at them when doing that, right? So, so I think that will be the future of responsibility. And, and again, this was the case all along. It was harder to notice it, though, when, when they were coming together as much as they were with, with our minds. Cool. Yeah, that's all super, super interesting. And I see what you mean about, it's clear from what you're saying that there are lots of related cases, cases where um, relationships are interconnected in such a way that blame and responsibility is already a bit complicated and punishment is already a bit complicated. And so maybe it's a nice thing that we don't need to invent entirely new moral concepts, but we're going to need to figure out how to apply them in cases that are pretty different to what we've got now. And and that's going to be a fascinating and important challenge. Another moral question that comes to mind is more just like, yeah, I guess I'm like utilitarian sympathetic. So it has to do more for me with like how we count up well-being, where I care more about like having many people be happy than a smaller number of people be happy. And I guess I'm curious how you count the well-being of minds that are connected. Yeah, that is a great question. And I think from a utilitarian perspective, one of the most important questions raised by the prospect of connected minds. So picture a situation where there are two subjects of experience who do have connected minds in the sense that they can access some of the same mental states. And, and suppose that some of those mental states are positively or negatively valenced experiential states like pleasure or pain. So you have a particular pleasure or pain state that two minds can access. Now, the question is, if I am adding up all the pleasures and pains in the world to decide what to do, do I count that as one because there is one pleasure state being accessed by two beings? Or do I count it at two because this is one pleasure state being accessed by two beings? And so much could depend on the answer to that question in terms of what actions or policies are best in the aggregate. Right. That does feel actually super, super important to me. My intuition is that if two consciousnesses have access to the same pleasure state, that is double the happiness relative to just one. What's your intuition? So I think my intuitions vary depending on how I describe the case in more detail. So if I am describing the case as two minds that are almost fully overlapping, like they share 99% of the same mental states with only minor variations, and then I imagine a single pain state occurs, then I have the intuition that there is one pain experience here. But if I imagine two minds that I kind of perceive as distinct, and they both, to a significant extent, have their own beliefs and desires and intentions, and then a pain state exists that they both can access, and it reverberates in both their psychologies, then I have the intuition that there are two pain experiences, and it should be double-counted. And so for me, what that suggests is that a lot depends on those details. And, and in particular, we can keep in mind that things like pleasure and pain are sort of holistic experiences. So if there is a single experiential state, 
that then is experienced by these two quite distinct minds and it interacts with their distinct mental states in a way that causes further types of emotional suffering and so on that are distinct, then yes, maybe there is still only that one pain experience, but it then triggered negative further experiences in these separate minds. And and maybe that explains the intuition that we should count two bad experiences here. Yeah, it feels like it could get just extremely complicated. Like I'm picturing two minds, I'm envisioning them as kind of a Venn diagram. And let's say the overlap between the Venn diagram is like very, very big, such that they're like, they share a lot. They share a lot of memories. They share a lot of the same kinds of systems and information processing. And yeah, there's there's a negative experience that causes suffering. I guess maybe let's say in the in the shared part of the Venn diagram somehow. And maybe that's because the thing is awful, but they share memories. And so they kind of share that memory over time of that terrible experience. And they kind of in some sense, they have access to that same memory bank with a bad memory and it's unpleasant to remember it. And that's that's bad. That's But that's a single bad because it's shared in this sense. And then it's, it also seems possible, though, that there's a bad thing that happens and they don't share the same memory. They each have different memory spaces. It's in the part of the Venn diagram that doesn't overlap. You know, maybe the experience of the thing itself was was shared, but they each have these negative memories that carry on. And then do you count the the suffering of each time you remember that negative thing twice because they're each having it kind of separately? And I imagine there could be like loads of permutations of this um, in a way that just seems like it could get near impossible to kind of count up good and bad experiences in the way that I kind of do, at least um, in, in a kind of simplistic way uh, in the world today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, first of all, about the analysis. I think that to the extent that it is literally a single fully shared state, it probably should be single counted. But then to the extent that it reverberates into these separate psychologies and causes further pleasure or pain of various kinds, then those should be counted as separate states. So I I agree about that analysis, but then I agree with your further point that once we accept that, and once we recognize that many minds might be like that, not only now, but especially in the future, then it gets really hard to keep track of all of the positive and negative consequences of actions. And here too, along with the interactions with ethics and personal identity is another way that the questions about copies and the questions about connected minds are similar. Because in both cases, we might have a sense of how to understand it theoretically. Yes, the copies all have moral standing. And yes, to the extent the minds are connected, they have the same experiences. And to the extent that they are not, they might have different experiences that should be counted separately. But in practice, once the world exists, parts of minds and whole minds and groups of minds that can all have moral standing, and then copies of all of those minds that can be made at hundreds or thousands or millions at a time, and then they exist at different levels of reality in the physical world and then simulations and simulations of simulations. How, how are we going to be able to navigate our moral and especially legal and political interactions? How can our ways of thinking about how to relate to ourselves and each other, but then the institutions, these blunt instruments that we use in order to govern our interactions, 
how can they adapt to this reality with any kind of precision or reliability? What an absolute mindfuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> is there anything else we should cover on Connected Minds? The only thing I will add is, is that my work on the ethics of Connected Minds in the case of AI is a collaboration with the philosopher Luke Roloffs, who has done a lot of work on the metaphysics of Connected Minds. And so I would suggest that everybody check out their work uh, if they are interested in this topic. Great. We will link to that. Okay, well, let's actually talk more about a thing that you mentioned just a moment ago. So how legal and political structures might have to change in order to deal with all of this craziness. Yeah, I mean, just a, just a broad question to start. What kinds of legal and political status should AI systems have? Yeah, great question. And, and this, too, is a question, as I noted earlier, that we already do ask about non-human animals. And, and so we can ask some of the same questions about AI systems, too, perhaps in slightly different form. We can take as examples what many regard as a fundamental kind of legal status, which is legal personhood, and what many regard as a fundamental kind of political status, which is political citizenship. So should AI systems be regarded as legal persons and political citizens? Yeah, let's talk about legal personhood first. What are your intuitions about what is going to need to happen there? The conversation about legal personhood is difficult to have because the word personhood trips a lot of people up. Many of us associate the word person with the word human because we use these terms interchangeably in everyday life. So first of all, we should note that in legal contexts, the word person has a different meaning. All it means is you are the type of being who can have legal duties or legal rights as appropriate given your capacities and relationships. So as long as you can have at least one duty or as long as you can have at least one right, then it is appropriate to describe you as a legal person. And so if we maintain this binary distinction between persons with duties or rights and non-persons without duties or rights, then we should absolutely classify not only all potentially sentient non-human animals as legal persons, but also all potentially sentient AI systems as legal persons, because they will be the types of beings who can have at least one right. Now, their rights might be different from ours because they might have different interests and needs. They might also be stronger or weaker than ours because they might have stronger or weaker interests and needs. So this is not to say that we should treat them under the law exactly as we should treat each other, but it is to say that we should regard them as subjects, not objects. We should regard them as rights holders, not, not rights holders. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm just trying to make that even more concrete for myself. And if I just kind of make some things up off the top of my head, it's something like, if an AI system is sentient, then I would strongly believe that it had the right to not suffer, to not be made to suffer in the way that I think humans and non-human animals do. But then there might also be different ones. Like, I think I have the right to not be murdered. And you might think that an AI system has the right to not be turned off. So it has a right to power, like literal electrical power and CPUs or something. <laughs> uh, maybe not, but like, that's a kind of different thing maybe you can imagine. Are there other kinds of rights and duties we should be thinking about? Yeah, the general way to think about personhood and associated rights and duties is that first of all, at least in my view, our rights come from our sentience and our interests, we have rights as long as we 
have interests. And then our duties come from our rationality and our ability to perform actions that affect others and to assess our actions. And AI systems, we might imagine, could have the types of welfare interests that generate rights, as well as the type of rational and moral agency that generate duties. So they might have both. Now, which rights and duties do they have? In the case of rights, the standard universal rights might be something like, according to the U.S. Constitution and the political philosophy that inspired it, the right to life and liberty and either property or the pursuit of happiness and so on. To bear arms. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do they have the right to bear arms? Well, well, we might want to revisit the Second Amendment before we empower <laughs> AI systems with weapons. Yep. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. We might start with those very basic rights. But then, as you say, that might already create some tensions between our current plans for how to use them and control them versus how we think it would be appropriate to interact with them if we truly did regard them as stakeholders and rights holders. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so we're going to have to kind of, on a case-by-case basis, really, evaluate the kinds of abilities, the kinds of experiences a system can have, the kinds of wants it has, and from there be like, okay, this system seems to really want, uh, let's say, I don't know, some AI systems are super social and they want to be connected up to a bunch of AIs, other AI systems. And so maybe they have a right to not be socially isolated and completely disconnected from other AI systems. That's a total random one. Who knows if that would ever happen? But we'll have to do this kind of evaluation on a case-by-case basis, which sounds incredibly, incredibly difficult. Right. And and this connects also with some of the political rights that we associate with citizenship. And, and so this might also be an opportunity to mention that, right? In addition to having rights as persons, and I carry my personhood rights with me everywhere I go. I can travel to other countries and I ought to still be treated as a person with a basic right to not be harmed or killed unnecessarily. But I also have these political rights within my political community, and that includes a right to reside here, a right to return here if I leave, a right to have my interests represented by the political process, even a right to participate in the political process, right? And and so, once again, if AI systems not only have basic welfare interests that warrant basic personhood rights, but then also reside in particular political communities and are stakeholders in those communities, then should they in some sense or to some extent have some of these further political rights too? And then what kinds of pressures would that put on our attempts to use them or control them in the way that we currently plan to do? So many questions we'll have to answer are leaping to mind from from this. Like, if an AI system is made in the U.S., is it a citizen of the U.S. with U.S.-based AI rights? Um, If they get copied and sent to China, is it a Chinese citizen with Chinese AI rights? Will there be political asylum for AI systems in countries that treat (laughs) their AIs badly? It's just striking me that it's going to be... it's like many fields of disciplines that will have to be created to deal with what will be an incredibly different world. Yeah, I agree. I I think that it is an open question whether it will make sense to extend concepts like legal personhood and political citizenship to AI systems. I could see those extensions working in the sense that I could see them having basic legal and political rights in the way that we currently understand those 
with appropriate modification given their different interests and needs and, and so on. But then when it comes to the kind of legal and political scaffolding that we use in order to enforce those rights, that I have a really hard time imagining working. So democracy as an institution, courts as an institution, I and mean, even forget about AI systems, once non-human animals, once the quadrillions of insects who live within our borders are, are treated as having legal and political rights, which I also think ought to be the case, even that makes it difficult to understand how democracy would function, how the courts would function. But, but especially once we have physical realities, simulated realities, copies and copies, no sense of borders in an era where the internet makes identity extend across geographical territories. At that point, if democracy can survive or if courts can survive, we will have to at the very least, realize them in very different ways than we do right now. Yeah. Can you talk about why those concepts might break down in a bit more detail? Like, what's your best guess at why democracy stops applying or why it stops being useful in the way that it is now? So as I think we all know, having lived through recent elections in the United States and elsewhere, democracy is already struggling, even when we regard only our fellow humans as stakeholders in and participants in our democratic systems. Once we allow that non-humans can also be stakeholders and participants in our democratic systems, then the problems that we already face are going to be amplified. And these include really basic problems like who has the right to vote and how can we ensure that they all have the ability to vote. And once I can start making hundreds or thousands or millions of copies of myself right before an election, then how is that going to affect electoral procedures and electoral outcomes? But then how could that problem be avoided without disenfranchising lots and lots of individuals who, through no fault of their own, were created in this way, but they still exist and they still have interests and they still want to express their interests? Those are questions to which I cannot find answers <laughs> Jeez. right now. Okay. And so that that concerns me a lot. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess spitballing even more. If we have AI systems, but also you're bringing up insects, when you have these beings with different degrees of wants, different degrees of cognitive ability, different degrees of capacity for suffering, how, <laughs> when I try to imagine a democracy that incorporates all of them, do they all get equal votes? Like, how do they vote? <laughs> right. Yeah. One, one issue is exactly who's going to count as a participant versus counting as a stakeholder. Right now, all at least ordinary adult humans count as both participants and stakeholders. But once we have a much vaster number and wider range of minds, then we have to ask, how many are we making decisions for, but then how many can also participate in making decisions? With other animals, that is a live debate. Some think, yes, they should be stakeholders. We should consider them, but we have to consider them. We have to make decisions on their behalf. And others say, no, actually they have voices too. We need to listen to them more. And we actually should bring them in, not only as stakeholders, but as participants, and then use the best science we have to interpret their communications and actually take what they have to say into account. So we have to ask that on the AI side too. Now, 
given that they might have forms of agency and language use that non-human animals lack, that might be a little bit less of an issue on the AI side. Yeah. But then the other issue that you mention is the moral weights issue, which corresponds to a legal and political weights issue. We take it for granted, rightly, that every human stakeholder counts as one and no more than one, that they carry equal weight. They have equal intrinsic value. But if we now share a legal and political community with a multi-species and multi-substrate population where some beings are much more likely to matter than others and some beings are likely to matter more than others, then how do we reflect that in, for example, how much weight everyone receives when legislatures make decisions or when election officials account votes? How much weight should they receive? Should we give beings less weight when they seem less likely to matter or likely to matter less? And then will that create perverse hierarchies where all of the humans are valuing humans more than AI systems, but then all the AI systems are valuing AI systems more than humans? But then if that seems bad, should we give everyone equal weight, even though some actually seem less likely to matter at all or or likely to matter less? These are going to be really complicated questions, too, not only at the level of theory, but also at the level of practice when it comes to actually how to interact with fellow community members who are really different from you. Totally. And bringing back the connected minds bit, um, how many votes will minds get when they have access to the same, some of the same experiences or some of the same information? Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. it really gets to what is the purpose of voting and, and counting, right? Is it that we want to collect as many diverse perspectives as possible so that we can find the truth? Or is it that we simply want to count up all of the preferences because we think that that is what should decide the outcome. Right. The number of people with a view um, should have that much kind of proportionate weight in how things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and if that is how we understand democracy, then it would not matter that you have a bunch of different minds all reasoning in the same exact way and arriving at the same outcome. It might be concerning in the way that the tyranny of the majority can always be concerning, but it might still be, at least on our current understanding of democracy, what should decide the outcome. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, this is all just uh, blowing my mind a bit. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> um, it sounds like we have a lot to figure out. Hopefully we have the time and the wisdom and the capacity to be able to think some of those things through, which is a great segue to building the field of AI welfare. So you've just helped create NYU's new mind ethics and policy program. Um, maybe do you want to just start by saying what the what the vision for that program is? Yeah, the NYU mind ethics and policy program launched in fall 22. And this is a research and outreach program that examines the nature and intrinsic significance of non-human minds with special focus on insects and AI systems. We want to understand what kinds of systems can be conscious or sentient or sapient, and what kinds of moral and legal and political status should they have if they are or might be. So many of the questions that you and I have been discussing, and, and we are doing research to address those issues, having events about those issues, bringing together early career researchers to support their work around these issues. And we would love to hear from people who are working or interested in working on these issues. 
Cool. First of all, thank you for doing that. That seems really important. And yeah, I guess as we've, well, as you've shown me, um, it seems like there are loads and loads of things to learn. But what do you see as the kind of major priorities for AI welfare research right now? Yeah, part of what makes this such an exciting field right now is that there are so many important and interesting questions to ask. But when I think about general priorities, I think about several different categories. The first category is which beings matter, which beings are or might be sentient or otherwise significant, and then how much do particular beings matter, what kind of welfare capacity might they have, and what degree of moral significance might they have? In what ways do particular beings matter? What might they want and need? And what might we owe them in light of those wants and needs? And then what follows for our actions and policies? So should they be legal persons? Should they be political citizens? How will democracy and liberalism and capitalism and these other basic institutions function in a world where they exist and are treated as stakeholders or participants. So those are the general categories, but within each of those categories are a bunch of important questions that I hope people can be working on. Great. Yeah. And I guess as part of that, you're really building this new field and you're figuring out kind of what you want the culture of that field to be and the principles you want it to kind of act and live by. And you've you've actually written up a blog post outlining some of those principles. And we can't go through them all now, but um, I did want to talk about a few of the more important ones. Which do you think is the most important principle for this field going going forward? Well, I can quickly mention a few that might be obvious, but I think are really important for field building purposes, which is that a field for AI welfare research should be pluralistic, multidisciplinary, and in a certain sense, multi-issue. And, and what I mean by that is, first of all, it should be pluralistic. We should not anchor to take for granted any particular theory of value or any particular theory of right action. We should not assume that welfare or moral standing is a function of pleasure and pain. We should allow for the possibility that it might result from other types of states too. And it should be multidisciplinary in the sense that it involves work in the humanities and the social sciences and the natural sciences. We need work in the humanities to understand what welfare is, what we might owe very different kinds of beings. We need work in the social sciences to figure out how we relate to each other, how we can realistically improve those relations. And we need work in the natural sciences, of course, to understand cognition and behavior for these minds. And then multi-issue in the sense that I think it would be a mistake to have this conversation completely separately from conversations about animal ethics, conversations about what we owe each other, conversations about AI ethics and safety and alignment, because each is going to have implications for the others and each has interactions with the others. And so we ideally would be working on these topics together in a way that takes them all seriously and that finds solutions that can work across contexts. Nice, nice. Um, and for people who are kind of inspired by this and want to contribute, what kinds of backgrounds might be most helpful? Well, the nice thing about this field, as we are thinking about it, is that it is pluralistic and multidisciplinary and multi-issue enough that we should be working with people with a lot of different backgrounds and interests. So we should have philosophers and sociologists and biologists and cognitive scientists and computer scientists and policymakers, we should have all of those people not only working on the topic, but having conversations with each other. And so I think 
there are a lot of different types of contributions that can be made. And if people have interest in the field, then I would suggest erring on the side of being in touch or erring on the side of thinking about how you might be able to contribute. Cool. Well, we'll link to a bunch of different articles and blog posts that you can read if you're interested in learning more about this topic and interested in learning more about how you might be able to contribute to it with your career. Um, But we are out of time, so I should ask a final question. And I'm going to ask my favorite final question, which is if you had to just completely change careers and somehow became totally indifferent to making the world a better place, um, which I think would be hard for you, uh, what would be the most kind of self-indulgent or most enjoyable career for you to pursue instead? I love that question. I do love my career and feel very grateful to be able to do what I do. And I will say that when I was graduating from college, I was considering this as one of three possible careers. The other two were law and TV comedy. When I was in college, I had an internship in TV comedy And I was really close to pursuing that professionally instead of going to grad school. And then even when I went to grad school, I went to NYU where I now work. I took the opportunity to study improv comedy at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And then I performed improv comedy in the city for several years while I was a grad student. That's amazing. And yeah, I loved it. I I loved every part of it, honestly. And if I was pursuing a career solely for the joy that I receive when engaged in an activity. I think the kind of creative expression that you have with a group of people when making up a show on the fly or when doing comedy or doing art of any kind, I think that that would probably compel me to pursue some kind of career in TV or film or theater. So again, glad that I chose this career, but that might have been the alternative career had things gone a little bit differently. I love that. Well, in a, in another universe, hopefully, uh, I get to watch you do um, do improv. Yeah, I guess a bit of a rogue question, uh, but is there anything that improv comedy can teach us about doing good in the world? Honestly, I think there are a lot of things that it can teach us about doing good. I was not taking those classes and performing improv specifically to learn life lessons that I could apply to my work and to my attempts at altruism. But I did learn some of those lessons. I can say one general one and then maybe a couple of specific ones. So one general lesson is that philosophy and comedy are actually a lot alike. They both force us to confront cognitive dissonance, contradictions, and ideas. They might do it a little bit differently. For example, a philosopher might say, consider this thought, now consider this thought, see how they contradict, how will we resolve this contradiction? Whereas a comedian might present the contradiction in an amusing manner, in a way that invites you to sit with that discomfort and say, yes, find it amusing, but then to also reflect on it. And good comedy can be a vehicle for social change in the same kind of way that good philosophy can be for that reason. And sometimes it can even be a better vehicle for social change because it operates in this more playful space that helps you to let your guard down and be a little bit more adventurous, a little bit more open-minded, a little bit more receptive to novel ideas or resolutions to contradictions. And so I think that can be a reminder that even though we engage in really serious topics, it helps to have a little bit of a playful mindset sometimes so that you can have that same kind of open-mindedness. Totally. Yeah, you said there were a few specific ones. What were those? Yeah, there are also a bunch that come from improv. I I can maybe mention a couple in, in the interest of time. One is that, of course, 
a foundational principle for improv comedy is yes and. So you might enter a show or a scene with a strong idea about how you want the show or the scene to go, but then a scene partner might initiate a completely different idea and you have to be prepared to set your idea down and enthusiastically embrace this new idea and then add to it and build this new scene with your partners. And so when you practice at improv comedy and and you perform improv comedy, you really have to train yourself to not impose your will on what is happening, but rather be collaborative and open-minded to work together with others as a team to build something together and then to be opportunistic and to be improvisational, to keep adapting to updated circumstances. And obviously, I think that is a kind of virtue and a kind of mindset that translates really well to, for instance, building a career or attempting to do good with your life. Cool. Any others? Yeah. Another is that it trains you to identify links between things that initially seem to have nothing to do with each other. So the way that you build an improv show is you start with scenes that have nothing to do with each other, and then you do second beats of those scenes. And then as the show comes to a close, you start to tie the scenes together, and then it all weaves together and it ends in this gratifying, unified state. And similarly, I think it can help in life or in a career to have all of these different interests, all of these different aspirations, and not necessarily impose unity or integration on them right away, to let them be what they are. And then you can gradually identify surprising and interesting connections between them over time. And if you eventually develop an area of expertise, it might exist at the intersection of all of these different random interests that you had. So allowing yourself that space for curiosity, the pursuit of seemingly unrelated things, and then discovering those connections and bringing them all together in the middle of or later on in your career, I think is is a really wonderful experience and, and one that was reinforced for me when I studied improv. Another one is that if you want to construct a good improv scene, then in addition to listening to your teammates and saying yes and and building a scene collaboratively, it helps to put the direct goal of the scene in the show out of your mind. The direct goal would be finding the game of the scene. So finding a joke that can be built out over the course of the scene and can be repeated in later scenes. But if you were thinking about that goal, every time you say a line, every time you make a choice, if you were thinking, I must be funny, I must be funny, I must find the game, I must find the game, that is a recipe for not being funny and not finding the game. But if you instead trust the process and trust your practice, if you trust all of those hours of work that you put in to doing improv with your teammates and you simply exist within the scene, you play your characters, you pay attention to the situation, you eventually will find something genuinely organically funny. And then it will actually be funny because you were pursuing the goal indirectly rather than pursuing it directly. And I think that has clear implications for how we live our lives and how we try to do good works too. For effective altruists or utilitarians, if we spend all of our time thinking, how can I do the most good possible? How can I do the most good possible? How can I maximize utility? How can I maximize utility? That is a recipe for not doing the most good possible, for not maximizing utility. You would never get out of bed in the morning because you would be calculating the long-term consequences of which sock you put on your feet first. Instead, if you cultivate virtuous character traits, if you build structures that incentivize and pull 
good actions out of you if you find general social and professional roles in life through which you can do the most good. And then if you spend most of your time in everyday life simply playing those roles within those structures, expressing those character traits, then you will do much more good, much more effectively and sustainably in the long run than you would have done otherwise. Nice. I love that. Let's wrap it up there. My guest today has been Jeff Siva. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jeff. It's been really a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, I highly recommend our interview with Rob Long on why large language models like GPT probably aren't conscious. It was my first interview for the show, but it's also still one of my favorites. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Dominic Armstrong and Myla McGuire. Additional content editing by myself and Katie Moore, who also puts together full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more. Those are available on our site. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.